Hello, retro movie lovers. Welcome. It's spring. Allergies are in the air. Everybody has allergies, including me, including my guest today. Um, first of all, I want to obviously welcome my good friend Trevor to the show. Trev, welcome back to the 1980s movie Graveyard. Oh, thanks, Goat. Good to be back. Yeah. This is, um, I'm trying to think, man. This is your third appearance, right? Yeah, at the Burbs and Supergirl. That's right. I was trying to think if there's a third one in there, but no, this is the third one. So yeah, so it's a, it's almost like you know, spring is always a time for a renewal, a time for change, like it or better not. And we might as well before we get the movie started today, we might as well get our business, so to speak, out of the way. We want to say happy trails to our good compadre Corey G. Corey G is uh, taking up. Uh, residents elsewhere outside the 1980s movie graveyard um wish him the best of luck obviously he was obviously brought a lot of spirit to the show a lot of the the movie picks were really inspired that he came up with like death wish 2 and so on so he was a great contributor he was a great co-host he was a great co-founder of the 1980s movie graveyard but you know as time goes on, people have different interests. Corey's getting more into the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> there was there was actually a blow up on the uh, Facebook page. Somebody got upset that he was posting so much Fast and the Furious things. So, like, I don't want to announce anything, but I believe he will be coming out. You know, with a like a Fast Countdown type podcast where, you know, because um, what's his name? Vin Diesel announced like the next six films and spinoff. So Corey's pretty much going to be doing the countdown, each one of those as well as reviewing past Vin Diesel works and whatnot. So look forward to that. As soon as we have a title for that, I'll be more than happy to happy to promote that for Corey. But yeah, I mean, there, there's probably a few people just turning off the podcast right now, but what can you do? You know, yeah, it's a shame. I'll miss him on the show. I mean, I'm on, I'm on record on other shows as saying he's my favorite podcaster. Oh, he's great. But, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I never get a chance to do one of these with him. Um, seemed I like know. every time I was coming on, he did not want to be here. But <laughs> yeah, hey, he was, you know, always caught a cold or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I won't look too deeply into that. And hopefully I'm not the, I have no part in, that. I, I hope I didn't play any part in that, but, uh, well, you know, well, I'm also not going to turn down the opportunity to slide on in there. You know? Yeah, slide in here, and you know, I'm sure Trev will be making his way into the graveyard more often. Um, there's some other people, you know, that we would love to invite on the show. Get on here. Hopefully, one time we'll have a big graveyard party. I just want to get a really good, fun movie on here one week and try to try to cram three or four, maybe five or six guys, and make it a real clusterfuck. <laughs> that, 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 just experiment so you know we 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 can't replace a cory g obviously i mean a guy like that you know so much stick so much uh character so much life you know i'm not gonna replace it but you know we can bring some other things and kind of go in some new directions you know it's like the fast and furious went on without paul walker it actually so. did yeah it actually did it, and if you would have sat around fast and furious 3 this franchise is going to go on without Paul Walker. Everybody mm-hmm. said, you're screwed, man. Look at Tokyo Drift. It ain't going to work. But, you know. So all we got to do is get Wiz Khalifa to write a song about us losing Corey G. And then- I, yeah, and then we'll be all good. So, Corey G, happy trails. Corey was actually supposed to do a little bit of a call-in. I was hoping to, um, you know, get him just to do a little five-minute call just to, you know, say thanks to the viewers and all the great memories and, you know, do a send-off. But, 
you know, he just, at the last minute, he had a change of heart, I guess, and he'd just rather kind of go quietly into the night, you know. He showed up in a wrestling mask, and he will always be a mystery in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, so moving along, this being the month of April now, you know, all things renewed, all things singular, all things one, all things that can only be one. That's right. Nice segue. (laughs) That's right. A little clunky, but I try to work it in there. (laughs) You know, April 1, there can only be one. We'll see. So, yeah, today we're happy to be presenting you some thoughts and feelings about Highlander. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Smoking is not permitted in this auditorium. It's the law. So we're going to go ahead and just get the movie rolling because, I mean, there's just so much you can talk about with Highlander here. So we have it. There's a lot of different versions from different companies. So there's going to be different opening logos and all that depending on who you bought your DVD or or Blu-ray from. But we're going to go past all, like, the opening company credits and just go straight to, like, the actual credits of the movie. We should also point out we're watching the director's cut as well. That's right. That's right. Now... Most likely than not, you're not going to have the theatrical cut, maybe if you have a VHS. As far yeah. as I know, from DVD on, it was always the longer cut. I believe theatrical is 110 running time, and the director's is 116, or um, known as the international version for a while. So I don't really know if it's director's cut or if it's... The... I believe my Laserdisc was labeled as the director's cut. Was it? Okay, yeah. I have the Mortal Edition, so... <laughs> I don't know who approved this, really. <laughs> it's extra six minutes right time. So this this is the, the slightly longer, you know, 116-minute version. Or going by DVD counter time, 156 and 28 seconds. So we're going to go to the, op- the real opening credits of the movie, not like those little CGI logos, where the first credit on screen is going to say, Thorn EMI Screen Entertainment Presents. And it's black, I'm sorry, it's red text on a black background. So I want to say one, two, three, go. And when you hear me hit go, hit play on your DVD players. You got your remote in hand, Trev? I'm all ready. All right. Come on, everybody. One, two, three, go. All right. And uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Trev. Well, first of all, let's talk about the opening scroll. From the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries, living many secret lives, struggling to reach the time of the gathering, when the few who remain will battle to the last. No one has ever known we were among you until now. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, 
but there's actually a lot of bitching in all the reviews for the DVDs and the Blu-rays that this this these opening credits are too bouncy. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I like it. It's like actually when I went and saw uh, Hateful Eight over like at Christmas and yeah. got to see it in the you know seventy millimeter, and the opening credits had that bounce to them. It just kind of brought a smile to my face to be reminded of that. Yeah, because I mean I would assume like back in the days of old optical titles, you know they couldn't you know at least at this time eighty six. I think they were still optically kind of printing these or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it has to do that this is it, wouldn't you say the bounce is coming from the film you know what yeah. I mean yeah that's what I mean that's why I like yeah. it by the way that uh, the last line on that opening scroll said no one has known we're among you until now which we'll find out throughout this film is not true at all <laughs> no, plenty it, of people throughout the ages have known about <laughs> lots this of, lots of people have known about it now you know this movie really thro- throws you, thrusts you into this this world, and then starts doing cutbacks into time, like right away flashbacks. Um, one thing for people maybe not following with the DVD or not super familiar with Highlander, I think one thing as far as like the lore and the legend of this that confuses people is yes, these immortal beings were placed here on Earth. To basically fight a contest, like a death sport, till there could be only one. But the, the, it's kind of an unfair advantage because some of them are born at different times throughout history, ain't that right? Yeah. It's like the Royal Rumble. It's like number 30. You know, you have the best shot. Yeah, because as you'll see later, first of all, we got to point Speaking out... Speaking of Royal Rumble. Yeah, yeah, some great... Non WWF wrestling here, so the fabulous yeah. Thunderbirds here. I mean, I, I I love this movie, but aren't you always just a little disappointed that when it starts, you just don't get to watch, you know, the rest of this this match? Yeah, it is kind of crazy that for such a big budget movie, and this is Madison Square Garden, like we didn't get to see the intro of like say like a Ric Flair, like the biggest wrestler. At least the only one I really recognize here is Michael Hayes, the guy with the super long. Mm-hmm. That's Ric Flair in the ring right now, isn't it? It was, I didn't think it was. So? It looks like him, but yeah. he, I, I don't think Flair was that flabby back then. This is a great camera pan-up shot, though. It is. Through, through uh, Madison Square Garden. This is the kind of shot that's taken for granted now, but I remember as a kid just being like kind of blown away by that shot. Well, you see, it. there is a small cut in there, like with the flashes. All of a sudden, it cuts mm-hmm. to the close-up where uh, Lambert is actually sitting within the crowd. And it's also very strange, like, like it, you can tell it's a legit wrestling crowd where they're doing the pan-up, but when they go in the close-up, all of a sudden he's surrounded by businessmen in suit and ties who are feverishly involved in this hillbilly wrestling match. Well, let me ask an even better question. Why exactly was Conor McLeod at this event? What was he doing there? You think I, he's a big wrestling fan? You know, the way I always took it was, I honestly think he went there to hide, just to hide amongst the because you know how they're constantly being hunted and everything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because when they pan up to him, he's certainly not even looking at the ring. No, he's just, like, deep in thought. And obviously he's having a flashback to, you know, his time, as, you know, in the Highlands of Scotland. It would have been pretty great here if actually the Highlander he had to fight was uh, Michael Hayes. <laughs> if, they, if he had to, like, make his way down to the ring. <laughs> and then Hayes pulls, like, a big sword out from underneath. <laughs> There's a fan with a wrestling mask in the, in the crowd at the, you know... It was a hockey mask. Yeah, know. hockey mask. Sorry, that's what I meant. Hockey mask at the wrestling show. I, I think this is this movie is really ahead of its time. I think the photography is really amazing in it. Um, oh, I mean, like one of the biggest stars of this movie is Russell Mulcahy's camera work. 
Oh, which yeah. Is, which is just awesome. It's, uh, I mean, you watch this film and, you know, uh, like Razorback, the early Mulcahy films, and it really is kind of shocking to me that he didn't have a better career after this. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I, I mean, I've seen most of his other films, and I will say, as far as the camera work and shit, like, he kind of peaked here, maybe mm-hmm. because this was his biggest budget. I mean, other than maybe the Resident Evil sequel that he did, like, I think... Which is, like, the worst one. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's, like, like, not that there was much of a story in Highlander, but, like, I feel like by the time he got to his Resident Evil sequel, he really didn't give a fuck about any yeah. story whatsoever. Did you ever see the direct-to-video um, mummy movie starring Christopher Walken he made? Uh, no, I did not. Very independent, low but very shitty. It's like mid nineties, late nineties, maybe time when walking was really just doing anything. So like now, <laughs> well, pretty much. Yeah. I guess that's true. Now, yeah. so we're watching the uh, we're watching the director's cut, immortal edition, international cut, whatever. Which means we're gonna get that great moment where this guy, for no reason, just starts doing backflips through the parking garage. Yeah, I guess through the theatrical cut, because uh, Lambert here fights a, a a pretty old guy, you know, relatively. Mm-hmm. But by the way, I thought, like, Lambert was, like, 40 when he made this movie. I looked it up. He was, like, 27 when he made yeah. this movie. He just has an old man look to him himself. But, um, but yeah, he, he fights this old kind of businessman. And I thought this was a smart choice, though. Because, like, you're like, oh, he's gonna fight this old fucking dude, the square-looking dude, you know, in this suit and tie. Like, you don't wanna whip the shit out of him, but this guy is actually a good fighter. And, if, and, and you know, without saying a lot of dialogue, they really set up, um, that was awesome, the sunglasses shot. But they really set up here that these these people are super-powered based on how yeah. many other Highlanders, this, they, this know, guy, immortals uh, they kill, I should say. The actor playing this guy is actually the stunt coordinator for the film. Is he? That mm-hmm. makes sense. You used to see that a lot more often. Like the stunt guy would do like a little role. Now, how, what do you think of? Uh, we should probably talk about Connor McLeod's outfit in this film. I recently it's watched weird. this film for the first time in a long time with a, a, a younger friend who'd never seen it, and she was kind of blown away that there was a time where the lead hero of your film would be wearing white sneakers and blue jeans, in <laughs> <laughs> a leather jacket and a trench coat over <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, but like. I kind of feel like I'm kind of glad this international cut or whatever has all the goofy shit of the 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 old guy doing all the backflips and stuff because without it I don't think you would really get the sense of how badass he was you know mm-hmm. and it's awesome too because like now it would just be like a CGI double doing some like super fast flips but then like I, I like the old days of practical stunt work where they just had to get a younger guy in a wig to do it <laughs> yeah. it is, and it's not super obvious or bad in this but I mean you obviously you know what the trick is you know I mean if you want to get me to like be like just all in on your movie really quick this is the way to do it you know yeah. guy a wrestling match <laughs> goes yeah. down the parking garage suddenly this old ass man in a suit's fighting him with a sword yeah. I'm in I don't like I'm I'll, I'll, I'll watch the next two hours of this I have yeah. no idea what's happening right now but hey yeah, like, like I, f- I feel like, you know, McLeod, there, it just keeps going on and on. He flips through the whole garage. I feel like McLeod went there, you know, I guess they, they never really talk about it too much, but I guess obviously they can, the immortals can sense each other. Mm-hmm. And I guess he was like kind of there and, you know, in, hiding in the crowd. And then when the guy got closer, that's when he went down the garage because he could sense him was <laughs> nearby. Well, as we'll find out later, too, this is the beginning of the gathering where they're all being right. like, they're all feeling a pull to New York. Right. Because because be, before this, like, they would just occasionally run into each other throughout the centuries in different mm-hmm. continents and whatnot. 
I wonder if that's like, they don't really get into it, but is the gathering, was that always destined to be in New York or was it based off of where the majority of them were when it starts, you know? Yeah, I always kind of assumed, because we don't really know, I always kind of assumed it was just, there was, because, I mean, you would think if it was always predestined where it would end, it would have been at a place much more ancient, if you know what Mm -hmm. I mean. I mean, America as a country is only a few hundred years old, whereas these guys were starting to be, I believe, born even before Christ was. So if it was predestined, I think he would have been in, like, Jerusalem or some shit. I thought this was a great shot where he hacks the guy's head off and then um, the sword gets caught in the concrete. Mm -hmm. And I actually think this is the best, like, because when they kill people, what do you call that? Is it? The quickening. Yeah, the quickening when they kill somebody and then all that person's energy and everybody they killed gets released, goes in the atmosphere, then eventually goes back into the guy, you know, the guy who won the fight. Like, I feel like this one in the beginning was actually handled the best because all the other ones later in the movie, like, they have windows blow out and shit, but just the the effects are just like, I don't know, the kind of half-assed. I do like the way on this one where the cars get kind of pulled in by the energy and... right. By the way, I don't know, like, the the DVD of this, which you also have, the the menu screen is, like, the end of the film. It is. Those, like, it spoiler is. alert menu screens. I know. So. Speaking of the DVD, I didn't really get into this film until DVD. You know, I got this Immortal, you know, edition. Does yours, come, like, slide into that? Uh, like, mine comes with the Queen soundtrack sampler, and then it slides into, like, this... Like, not a steel book, but, like, a metal sleeve thing. It's weird. Oh, no, mine does not. Mine's just a regular case. But I bought, like, for five bucks at, like, right. a bargain bin. You probably got, like, the stripped-down edition. <laughs> yeah. I think I got, like, I was... the, the deluxe numbered one or something. But I didn't really get into this movie because, you know, there's a time when early on in DVD I was just buying any cult film. I didn't mm. see this in the theaters. I saw it on videotape as a kid. And, obviously, I, I like, re-rented it on tape when Highlander 2 came out back in the day. And, uh, but, so I wasn't super familiar with this until the DVD era and like this DVD, you know, with a sweet DTS soundtrack and everything, just kind of how good this DVD was overall is what got me into the movie, you know? So I was really into this movie as a kid. I mean, I, what is, uh, I would watch it whenever it was on cable. And then as I mentioned just earlier, I did have the big Laserdisc edition of the director's cut, which actually I still have just cause it looks so cool that even though I don't play the Laserdisc anymore, I wanted to hold on to that one. But, um, yeah, so I was really into this, and then I got, we'll probably talk about this more throughout the commentary, but I just really got into Highlander as a franchise, like, total. I mean, I watched the TV show, I kept going with the sequels, even when Common Sense told me I shouldn't. (laughs) I mean, and I remember how big, for a while, this really was, I feel like Highlander around the the peak of the TV show, it almost feels like it was one of the first examples of, like, a big fandom, like the kind of fandoms we're used to today with, like, you know, Walking Dead and Battlestar Galactica, that kind of stuff. But I remember when Highlander had, like, websites devoted to it at a time when the internet was just kind of in its infancy. There was a Highlander catalog you could get full of just Highlander there merchandise. Were, there's even a Highlander catalog, uh, catalog thing that comes with my DVD. Yeah. Where you can buy, like, $400 swords and shit. Yeah, and they could have they had Highlander jackets and all this yeah. different stuff you could buy. and like little replica swords that were actually just pens. I mean, it was a it was a big deal for a while, and now it's almost complete. I don't want to say it's completely forgotten, but I feel like this old, this first movie is the only one people still care about. And I also feel like it's a film that people still make Highlander jokes in a lot of movies, right? You know, or like 
when someone's an immortal, they always call him the Highlander, even though that's not really what's happening in this movie. They're not all Highlanders, you know. Um, or decapitations, like people always reference Highlander. But I think kind of that's all it's remembered about it. I think that's what drew me and a lot of other kids to it at, Like when I was younger. Like, like oh, Highlander's the thing where they cut each other's heads off. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not, it's not, even in this first film, it's never done in like a bloody way, I would say. No. But I wanted to double check this because the DVD doesn't have it. But the Blu-ray did was, uh, when I watched the Blu-ray the other day, um, it had the Can of Films logo at the beginning. This was a co-production, I guess, between Highlander Productions Limited and Can of Films. So I found that interesting. Like, it's actually pretty, you know, I, I don't think they were involved creatively with it. Because if they were, it probably would have sucked, like, really mm-hmm. hard. But it's interesting that Canon was involved in this film. Because, you know, Canon's known for being, like, way schlockier, you know. Mm-hmm. Here we get our first appearance of Kurgan. Yeah, uh, Clancy Brown will. Clancy Brown will always be Kurgan to me. Yeah, I guess like to most mainstream audiences, he's most known for being in one of the most beloved Stephen King movies, uh, <laughs> yeah. at Cemetery Two, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also Shawshank Redemption. But I mean, yeah, I, I actually had the uh, the I guess fortune to uh, witness the man Clancy Brown. Uh, in all his glory at a Toys R Us shopping for Legos for this, wow. his kid. I was on a ladder, so I was actually looking down on the Kurgan. And he was, like, looking back and forth, and uh, I was stocking some shelves. And um, I, for a brief second, I thought Clancy Brown was going to ask me something. I would have been more than happy to help him, but um, did not. You didn't get a chance to say hi to him? Nah. And, and another thing, too, was he was so, like, almost dressed like a college professor. This was... I guess almost mid two thousands, and, and like he had short, like short, like really great hair already, and he had like a blazer and slacks on. Like, it, like I really didn't notice him at first at all because a I thought we thought Clancy Brown was much taller. Um, I'm curious now about his height because I'm six foot, and he didn't really seem like that much bigger to me at all. But um, but yeah, he just was very, you know, seemed like a nice guy, quiet guy. But I was just like, it was completely against what I known from Clancy Brown as the. Uh, oh, he's six foot four, so he's he's kind of tall. But um, but yeah, I just you know, I just expected him to be talking in a growling voice or yelling some shit out like he does in Starship Troopers, and here he was, quiet guy, not saying a peep, buying some Lego sets. He looks pretty badass in this armor. That's a great oh, design. Oh, does, yeah. I almost wish they would have, like, in the modern scenes, he would have had, a, like, an updated version of that helmet, at least. Because that was so badass. I can't wait to talk about him in the modern scenes, because he really is putting in... I mean, he goes all in on his performance, and... Right. He's really almost in a different movie than everyone else, once we get to, like, a certain point. Yeah, he, in, a, in a good way. Yeah, he he's almost like... In, he's almost like, in a good way, he's almost like a villain you would see in a Canon Films movie. Yeah. Now here he is. He came, he showed up in this battle. He joined sides in this these battling clans. He joined up with one side to go against the McClouds because he wanted to uh, kill. Uh, uh, I can't. I, I'm keep screwing up his name. What? It's Connor. Not, it's Connor. Yeah. I, I want to okay. say Duncan, but I, like I knew that was uh, the TV show mm-hmm. uh, character. Um, yeah. So he got a good stab in him, but then he got <laughs> dragged away. He was not able to, you know. Quick in the cloud's head there. 
Yeah, this little eyeball shot, if you get the Blu-ray, or at least the Blu-ray I had, that was the only shot that was in VHS. The rest of it was all Blu-ray quality. I was impressed by this shot right here. It was this like is awesome. The camera mounted on the port. Like, how come we can't get this more often? Like, we get so much shitty, shaky cam in movies now, but we can't get this. Oh, man, look at, like, Lambert looks really badass there with his hair slicked back. Yeah. What a dopey haircut he has for the rest of the movie. Yeah, like, I was looking at it, and it's like, it's like a, sh- I don't know how you describe it. It's just like his, his bang. he just has bangs, like, on his forehead, like. And it, like, puffs out above his ears a little too much. Yeah, it's like, it, well, it's kind of shaggier than you think. It's not like a tightly cropped Caesar type cut. It's just mm-hmm. like a clump of hair on top of his head. I guess this was like a, you know a, somewhat of a star making role for him though. I mean I'm, I mean as dangerous as the Kurgan is, Christopher Lambert's main enemy in this film is the English language. He's definitely, yeah. uh, you know, it's, he could not speak English when he made this film. He was doing all of his lines phonetically, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's seen this film and listened to him talking it. No, yeah, it's you but, know, but even with that, like he's just got a definite. I don't know if I want to say star quality, but he has a charisma obviously that comes across, and it, it powered him through a lot of the eighties. Well, also, in the 90s, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, he had a good run, I would say, up until about 94, 95. Mm-hmm. You know, because he even, like, there was that Road Killers movie with him and um, David I mean, Arquette. He was raiding, you know, can't take Yeah, raiding. I mean, that was a little more on the downside. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but no, but I, I, I think what you're, you're on to something there, like, with him not being able to speak as much, I think it brings more of um I don't know. It brings more of a, you know, I mean, kind kind of like kind of like Van Damme in some of his early movies where he barely talked, you know, it brings more mystery to the character draws you in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Also too, like one thing I didn't know until recently cuz I I noticed like watching this like oh Lambert, like he's got like a weird intensity. He's got like a strange look in his eyes. It's cuz he, he actually can't see. He's very uh he has like a really bad eye disorder, so without glasses he can't see anything at all. Yeah, and I forget. He got... Oh, go ahead. No, and there's some reason supposedly I think where he couldn't wear contacts or something. So a lot of times when he did the fights, he would have to rehearse like extra, extra long because the other actors were scared they would get chopped up because he really couldn't see at all. Yeah, I mean, he eventually got to a point where it was around the time of Highlander in a game where he did say he's like, I can't even do these sword fighting movies anymore because I'm I'm legally blind and I just can't yeah. even choreograph the fights anymore because I just can't see. Which now, if if people have ever seen, like, the behind-the-scenes of the show The Walking Dead, they do, like, a lot of stabbings with, with basically, like, they just hold the a knife blade, but there's no actual blade, and they CG in the blade. I wonder if he could do something like that with a, you know, a, a, a half-sword or the... Oh, uh, he doesn't need to. He's a, he's a Coen Brothers guy now, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we you and I both witnessed his, uh, yeah. his return to the, the spotlight in Hail Caesar, didn't we? <laughs> It's my favorite movie where Christopher Lambert fucks Scarlett Johansson. And, like, that was, like, some Lambert... I'll be honest, that was some Lambert that took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting Lambert to show up in that film. I mean, you have a who's who of modern Hollywood. Hollywood, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Jonah Hill, and it's a very small role. Um, Channing Tatum, Josh Brolin, and then you got Lambert coming back full force. One one uh, one great fact about Lambert, though, he must be a very uh, you know suave, uh, charming and suave guy because he was actually uh, married to Diane Lane in the eighties. 
And I mean, Diana and Lane, I mean, you know what she looks like now, but if you ever seen The Outsiders, you know she was even 10, well, I wouldn't even say 10, I'd say 30 times <laughs> better looking things. Now here, here we get introduced to this weird ass old cop guy who's like the most bug-eyed detective, I'd say. <laughs> and the, uh, what, what do you call her? Is, is she a forensics uh, I, I guess so. I mean, I don't. It, I, it's it, kind of. It seems like her only specialty is ancient swords, though. Yeah, I don't know why you consult someone like that. If yeah, <laughs> she comes to every crime scene just hoping there's an ancient sword. You would think. I wonder if Christopher Lambert and Josh Brolin talked about Diane Lane on the on the set of Hail Caesar. Yeah, I didn't even think about that because technically they're what Eskimo brothers. Is that what you call? Yeah. Them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, John Polito is a character actor that I miss seeing. I, wish, I don't know what, what's gotten up with him, but... Well, th- this this little part here was something you wouldn't see in the um, the modern age when they're interrogating Lambert. Um, the, 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 they keep, in the well, the beat cop, I guess, here, keeps insinuating that, like, over and over that Lambert was there to get some gay sex and the... Uh, yeah, and there's some uh, definite language you wouldn't have in a mainstream no, yeah. film today. You know, I let, let me let me hit the I team um, real quick because I think Polito's this the guy that I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Polito. I was a big fan of John Polito when I was a young boy playing the uh, the Sega CD game Sewer Shark. <laughs> <laughs> it was a full motion video game and basically you just flew like a little like helicopter thing mm-hmm. around and um <coughs> was it maybe it wasn't Polito who was in it now did you also own night trap the super controversial oh, yeah. horror game and i had the original version oh i'm sorry i'm mistaking Polito for robert costanzo a guy who looks almost identical to Polito. But uh, I apologize for that. Well, all the Polito maniacs are just going insane. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yeah, I had Night Trap. Night Trap was great because Night Trap was actually filmed like years earlier, but it was so controversial they couldn't release it. And then mm-hmm. also in Sega CD, they're like, oh shit, there's another, like, whatever, you know, full motion system we can do now. I actually wouldn't mind with all these old video games turned into movies. I wouldn't mind having a, a real Night Trap movie uh, adaptation. It'd be awesome to get somebody like Ty West to direct it. Because you wouldn't have to spend much money on it at all. So they pretty much had Lambert dead to rights there in terms of uh, questioning him for this grisly murder of this businessman in the parking garage of Madison Square Garden. But uh, Lambert is old enough. He's been around for centuries. He knows his rights. He put it into that shit and walked right the fuck out of there. What an odd interrogation room, too, if you think about it. There was just this one desk all the way over to one side of the room and then just a completely bare floor. Like a huge room. Break out a dance party for some reason in there. Yeah, like a huge room. I I think that was so uh, Russell could fit all his cameras in there to get all those Dutch angles he liked so much. (laughs) Now, here we go with the modern version of the Kurgan here. Yeah. And and I love this. I love the lobby of this hotel. I, yeah. 
I just love, I mean, I think I've talked about this before, maybe one of these or, or different podcasts we've done, but I kind of am a sucker for any movie that takes place in like seedy 80s New York. Yeah. And and these characters, this drunk old man and the hotel clerk just totally fit into that of why I love it. Just the characters you get in those kind of films. Now, this might have been the only part that Canon Films had some creative control over. Colin Glow was get a shitty hotel, the bum drinking. (laughs) (laughs) And then this is another sequence when I was watching this other night. You know, this kind of the way this is edited together. This is, I mean, Mulcahy was like very huge in the MTV generation. Like, I believe he did like the Randoran videos and stuff. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. he, you know, he was on the cutting edge, but even now, I think the editing style of this montage of Clancy Brown putting the sword together and then doing the movies like it's it's interesting you know th- this movie in all honesty is a two hour movie that really has no right to be two hours with how skimpy the story is but there's constantly something visually or with the music you know like they you know with the addition of the score as well as Queen's songs that they contribute to the soundtrack and then Mulcahy's direction like they made this movie I think that's what spawned this whole franchise was they made this movie way more epic than it had any right being honestly yeah, and we haven't even talked about the Queen element yet, but no. I mean, that's obviously a huge part of this film's success, and uh, one of the more, like, still today well-known parts of it is the fact that Queen did all the original songs for it. I think there was four in total, because there, there might be more, but there's, there's like, the Highlander theme, there's the love theme, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, the joyous, like, at the end of the movie-type, like, wrap-up song. There's the Just Give Me a Prize, too, or Just Give Me the Prize. I think that's what Kurgan was just listening to driving uh, into New York. Yeah, that's right. Like, but I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I like I'm pretty familiar with Queen. I don't really know exactly what, like where their career was, but I've, I, I, I've at this time. But I feel like they were like too big to be doing like. Yeah, it's kind of weird. They were definitely a big deal, and and it's and it's not like they just it, it, they were involved too. I mean, they worked with. Was it Michael Kamen who did the score? Yeah. Yeah, because they, they wanted them. to make sure like the, it blended in with the themes right. and stuff, you know. Right. And I mean, it's actually interesting that the opening song that we heard over the opening credits, like the Princes of the Universe, right. that song would become the theme song of the TV show. And so today is really associated with this movie or this franchise, I should say. But it's not really like replayed or anything in the movie here. It's just kind of no. quickly heard in the beginning. Yeah, I really got into that song because of the TV show. Like I watched mm-hmm. the TV show. The TV show when it was airing was was because it was syndicated. It was on a really funky stations, really funky time. So I didn't get to watch it like all the time. But like just watching the show, like it got that song pounded into my head. Yeah, it's a great song too. Like I like the really like grinding like sound of it, the way it kind of chugs along. This is where Lambert has to go back and get his sword out of the Madison Square Garden parking lot, but the forensic specialist is there to take chips of the sword out of the concrete pillar and all this. Uh, gigantic chips, too. I'm not sure that's very accurate. Yeah, like, I don't I don't think his sword would really break apart like that, considering how awesome of a sword it was. There's a Queen song playing during this scene as well. Yeah. So I think it's definitely more than four songs. I mean, uh, there's... I don't know if they ever put it out as a soundtrack, but the Queen album called uh, A Kind of Magic has all the songs on it that were in, featured in this film. Yeah, this version of the DVD I have comes with a CD, but I'm pretty certain it's um, not the uh, like the full thing. It's only a couple. 
Let's see. You got some great 80s diffused lighting in this scene. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Checking out the IMDb. Let's see. For some reason, IMDb says that all these songs are uncredited, which I don't know what that means. But there was A Kind of Magic, One Year of Love, Who Wants to Live Forever. I think Who Wants to Live Forever is maybe my favorite. <coughs> A song called Hammer to Fall. Princes of the Universe, Give Me the Prize, which is Kurgan's theme, A Dozen Red Roses for My Darling, and New York, New York. Because they do do a version of New York, New York, which uh, oh, yeah. that's when like one of the parts where Kurgan's going all crazy. So, yeah. So, eight, I guess, maybe seven original songs. So. I, I, I recently watched an interview with Christopher Lambert like, from a couple years ago where they're asking about the, you know, the possibility of a Highlander remake. Yeah, and he and he said that you know it's really hard because you have to find the right director and the right star. And he said, and, co- and he said you'd have to find the new queen. And I don't know who the new queen is. And that just makes me wonder, like, does he really think they'd have to, you know, again nah. get a rock band to do all the songs? But <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be cool if you did, I guess. Trust, but... trust me, Christopher Lambert. If they do the remake, they found the new queen, and his name is Skrillex. <laughs> <laughs> just get, uh, just get Muse. I guess Muse is the closest equivalent to Queen, or at least a band's trying to be Queen. And Muse. Right? Muse, in terms of their career, is probably at the point in their career now that Queen was when they had to do Highlander mm-hmm. songs, you know, so. But it's yeah. not something you really see anymore where, like, a one band will do a series mm-hmm. of songs for a film. No, I used to like it a lot when they did it, too. Mm-hmm. And I used to like, um, and sometimes I didn't know because it was, like, the home video versions where they had to reuse songs so they lost some of the songs off the soundtrack rights. But I used to like when, like, a cheap ass movie would like say license like Devo's Whip It, and then they would just would play it like three or four times throughout the movie. <laughs> that was a great introduction to Kurgan right there. Where apparently, he's just crouching beside them, but they didn't realize it. Yeah, no, I, you know, there's, there's, I could see like a modern audience watching this and thinking it's like too campy and over the top. I mean, I don't think the modern audience could even complain with the production values because, like we said, this movie looks amazing. It looks mm-hmm. way better than the shaky, grimy shit that they put out now as action movies. But, but like, yeah, like I, there is a lot of things that I wouldn't go so as far to say are cheesy in this film. But this is this movie clearly comes from a time when you know feature films were allowed to be more theatrical than they yeah. are now. You know, and it really is. It's a style over substance film. Yeah. But, I mean, in the best way possible of that term. Yeah, and, like, when you have a film like that, I feel like you kind of have to make it extra long. Like, they're, they're, if they did a remake now, which they have been talking about, but if they did a remake now, like, I don't think there would be nearly the amount of flashbacks to, you know, like, his wife that he outlived and all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, with this, like, they flashback to it to enough to where you saw a lot of it. Like, it, it almost feels like with the flashbacks, there's so many flashbacks that there's almost two narratives in this film, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, usually a flashback is just a way within a plot or a story to just jump back really quickly just to get some vital information that we need. Whereas this, it's, like, kind of like, no, there's, there's kind of two movies going on here. There's this guy who he is now living in modern New York and who he's become. And there's also this guy. Because, I mean, that is one good thing about Lambert. Like, when he plays the scenes in, you know, the Highlands of Scotland when he was younger and didn't know what was going on with him. He didn't even know he was immortal yet. Like, there's a great, you know, naiveness to his character and stuff, you know.
So speaking of the remake, the last time I think the remake was seriously considered, pretty <laughs> much what I kept hearing was McLeod was going to be Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I think he was signed on for a while. He was. I didn't think away. he was like a co-producer, and I think it was just one of those things. The movie kept stalling out so much, and he was trying to get other shit done. Yeah, that it's like why I waste my time with this. I, I think, think a, it, Batista had signed on too to play Kurgan. That you know that actually would have been pre- that even if you remade it right now, I think I still would go with Batista. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you kind of got to be careful with Batista because he's getting really typecast in these like remake villain roles and shit. Yeah, I also, I mean, I'd, I'd put it forward that if you remade this today, maybe don't just try and recreate Kurgan. You know, maybe come up right. with a new villain. I think maybe you you could go as far as to not even make the main character a, a Highlander, maybe make him from a different place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be pretty inspired casting. I think if you could get like, uh, what's the guy's name? I'm gonna butcher his name, like Byung Hung Lee. If you could get him, yeah, and have him kind of be the main guy and, and start out with uh, you know origins and and Asia. Like, I don't know what it is about that guy, but he's been typecast as, like, every single... <laughs> he was... I'm mean, obviously in all the original Korean movies, he was playing a Korean, but then he played a Japanese guy in G.I. Joe and whatever. <laughs> That's kind of weird how Asian actors, like, get cast as like, yeah. other, you know... Uh, nationalities. But I guess that's kind of true for white actors too, right? I mean, here we have a French guy playing a Scottish guy. It is true. What do you think? Like, I always find it odd that they went like such a weird casting with the French guy playing a Scottish so a guy. French guy playing a Scottish guy, and then they hired a Scottish guy to play a Spaniard. Exactly. Very strange. <laughs> yeah. But you and know, the- it's like I could understand. I mean, obviously. You know, I can understand if somebody, when this movie came out, somebody, like, older, somebody, say, in their 40s at the time this movie, just laughing this movie off screen, like, what are you doing? You got James Bond playing the Spaniard, and you got, but, like, I think for people like us, like, we're so used to, like, this wacky-ass uh, film world of ethnic miscasting that, like, mm. we kind of just buy it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, we don't even care that, like... Lambert doesn't even have a hint of a Scottish accent in this movie. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I mean you're just always and you're just happy to see Sean Connery, so you don't care that right. He doesn't really seem Spanish, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> I, yeah, I don't. I mean, if today, if you made, I've always like I was thinking if I remade this and he wanted to get an actual Scottish person, I think it, like James McAvoy might be a cool Connor McLeod. He he I, he would be because I mean. You, you you think like oh whatever but like he's pretty badass and wanted and yeah if you and I think that him... could be part of it too that he seems unassuming but but I never really liked the idea of Ryan Reynolds you just I don't know no, I mean Ryan yeah. Reynolds Ryan Reynolds was born to play Deadpool and that's kind of about it <laughs> Deadpool and Van Wilder who is pretty much Van Wilder's pretty much Deadpool before he got all like scarred up I don't think of Conor McLeod as like a a jokey character which that's what I always associate Ryan Reynolds with exactly. I really, I tell you what, there's something about, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but when foreign directors, because uh, uh, Mulcahy's from, what, Australia? Mm-hmm. When foreign directors in this film, and then also, I'm blanking off the top of my head which movie it was, but there's some movie where Dario Argento also shot in New York, and then John Woo 
shot in New York too for parts of Better Tomorrow too. There is something about these foreign guys because New York is such a mystical, known as such a mystical place, magical city to some degree around the world. When they come to New York, they they find like the more interesting things and they shoot it in a more interesting way than I think we do. I think when you watch Americans making films set in New York, you kind of see the same locales over and over and over and mm-hmm. it's just you know these foreign guys because they're so interested in the city they find more interesting looking crannies now mcleod's hideout here i always every time i watch this movie i think this is the coolest fucking room the circular room oh i love it yeah i mean it's really only good for having like a party i guess yeah because it's just a bunch of people sitting in a circle looking at each other other, yeah but it's just a you know it's a cool layer we keep all those antiques here, here we get, you know, through the course of the flashbacks, pretty much, you know, he survived getting stabbed by the Kurgan, so his original um, <coughs> village or whatever cast him out thinking he would, you know, possess some kind of, like, demonic magic, and, uh, you know, that he made, or he made a bargain with the devil to come back mm-hmm. to life, which, you know, obviously... Which seems heartbreaking to get cast away from your village, but I think I would live through it to, you know, live in exile with this chick. Yeah, because it actually kind of seems like he has a better life now that he's been exiled. Because yeah. he, he finds a woman, he finds a wife. They're kind of just, like, living out in the country by themselves. Um, another thing we should mention, I guess, because there's a love scene going on. And he doesn't know it now until Connery shows up. But the immortals actually cannot have children. Right. Which I actually think is good. Because, like, when I was talking to Corey on the V episodes, kind of where V jumped the shark for me was when they got all obsessed with this idea of an alien human hybrid and i think highlander would have really jumped the shark if we would start having half human half immortal characters you know what i mean so one thing we can i mean sean connery just showed up and we'll probably have more to say about him but because you mentioned that so one thing we should talk about for those who aren't watching along with us or just don't know too much about highlanders we haven't really talked about the general concept of this film right Mm. And that it's that there is this race of immortals who live on Earth, and they're all battling, uh, forced to battle each other until there's only one, and then that one is going to receive the prize. Right. And we don't even really know what the prize is. And actually, as the franchise moved along, what the prize is kind of kept changing. Yeah. Yeah. And you you mentioned the thing about it being, uh, not being able to have kids, and actually in in the last Highlander film that was made, Highlander the Source, that was, that revealed that the version of the prize in that was the ability to have children. Wow. I don't know if that would be really be worth fighting for. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's it'd be you know obviously in a real world kind of sense, but we were talking about what you would have to go through to win the prize in these movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we'll have we got so long because like you said this movie is like two hours long, but we'll have yeah. more time to talk about how the reason that kept happening with the franchise keep changing and, and some of the mistakes maybe they made when they made this film in terms of that. Well, I guess another thing, too, is, like, you can't help but immediately think of Highlander as a franchise, because that's what it was. I mean, even to the point um, that there was a short-lived um, Highlander Cartoon. animated series, yeah, and then there was a spin-off video game of it and all this kind of shit. But, it, it like, this movie is pretty damn definitive. Like It is, were... that, well, I guess, let's yeah, let's, let's just say that's the thing is, you watch this, and this definitely was not made for sequels, because no. this tells the whole story. Yeah. And you can look at that now, like, we look at that, I'm sure modern audience would consider that a mistake, you know, yeah. say, oh, they shouldn't have done that, and then they wouldn't have had to keep coming up with all these weird excuses that they did in the sequels. But I think part of it, that's part of the charm of the original film, too, is that you can just watch this and have the, get the whole story and, and not have to worry about the rest of it. And, like, you know, I mean, I kind of, I don't know, 
I guess because, you know, I was growing up, all of these Highlander films are coming out, and I, except for this one, I saw all the other ones in the in the theater. Um, so, I, like, I've kind of embraced all the lore and the changiness of it. Love the shot, too, the crane down shot of his apartment. But, um, but I can very well see people who just loved this first film when it came out, and then whenever Highlander 2 came out five or six years later, just totally rejecting that movie. Because Highlander 2 really rewrites who they are and what's yeah. going on and, you know, all that. So, like, I could almost see there being a split fan base out there of people who love the original film and just consider the sequels just knockoffs and don't consider them canon. You know what I mean? Because, like you said, like, it's it's really what came after was not part of this original story whatsoever, you know? Here's probably the coolest transition in the film. Yeah, from the fish tank to the... Uh, the lake here. That's a pretty amazing transition, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think the only... I mean, Highlander 2 and Highlander 3 really kind of play fast and loose with the mythology to keep the story going. The TV show had the right idea, at least, in that the TV show is essentially almost like a precursor to... Um, not a precursor, but I'd say the TV show is one of the original like reboots, you know, or right. uh, that that concept where it kind of goes back and says, "Yeah, the first movie happened, but it wasn't for the prize. That wasn't that wasn't quite done yet, and really, there still was a lot more of them." And basically, just resets the continuity. So Connor is still out there, but the show follows Duncan McLeod, uh, uh, another person from the Clan McLeod, a couple generations later. Right. I thought that was a pretty clever idea to you know just extend it the only problem is that tv show um never really got to tell a definitive ending I mean, we like so we get to the highlander the source which i don't know if you've seen that one go but it is one of the worst movies ever made that's the yeah that's the only one i haven't seen oof, it's that's like and you I, need to see it just for yeah uh, like honestly i didn't i would say it was maybe when highlander 2 came out on blu-ray and i got that that i was doing some reading and discovered it so i've only even known that that movie's existed for a few years i mean it debuted on the sci-fi channel and I remember I, I watched it that night and just could not believe how bad it was. But it's, it is too bad that, like, Duncan McCloud never got his cool finale, like like Connor gets here in this first film, and then it keeps getting taken away from him. But as you said, we can just keep referring to this first film and ignore the rest of it. Yeah, I, I really like this, this scene where he gets tossed underwater and realizes he can't drown. But see, this, like, I always feel like, wouldn't it be more like he would keep dying and just coming back? <laughs> I mean, I guess like like the way they kind of play it is that like he runs out, he like he exhausts all his air, and he realizes he doesn't really need air. Mm-hmm. But I guess you're right; he technically would fully drown and then wash up and probably come back alive like a day later or something. No, I got I got to ask you, being a, a McLeod fan here. Um, because, you know, he uses two swords in this film, the Scottish broadsword and the katana. Mm-hmm. Which do you, like, prefer? Because they actually sell them both in this Highlander catalog. Yeah. I should actually pull uh, this out right now and look at this catalog. <laughs> I love, I actually love the katanas. I, yeah. I remember that, that, that catalog you're talking about. As I said, I actually, uh, boy, I can't remember if I was in, like, a Highlander fan club. I think, I feel like I would remember that. But I know I certainly had Highlander catalogs mailed to me. So I must have yeah. signed up for something. And I, they were like full magazine-sized Highlander catalogs. Oh, I mean, yeah. they were full. They were just full of merchandise. And, and, and as you said, they sold the replica swords, and I always really wanted that Connor katana. It's, I mean, it's Ramirez's sword that he ends up yeah. taking. But I love it. I love the dragon head blade and everything. Yeah, it's great. 
And, uh, and and they sold the merchandise long after even the films were done. Because I remember seeing it still in magazines. Like, you would see advertisements of shit like Starlog. And, like, I would just get, like, catalogs that would have movie-related merchandise. And there was always Highlander shit. And then... It's, it's just so weird. I mean, maybe... I mean, well, this is a show about nothing but nostalgia. But it's hard to believe. You know, it's like now, like... And, and there are high-end props out there and stuff, and websites you can get from and cost a lot of money, but it seems like now people are just more about, like, the little, like, plasticky toy shit. And it's hard to believe that there was a time where, like, you know, like, it was a huge money-making venture to to recreate the knives from the Rambo series or the swords <laughs> from the Highlander film. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I, I feel like... Fan culture is bigger now than ever, but in a t-shirt and doll kind of way, not really like a obsessive, like, you know, it's like, you know how so many people like made their own Indiana Jones bullwhips and shit back in the day and all that. This is where the, I mean, the pacing of like an 80s movie's pacing completely contrasts with modern pacing because I don't think a modern remake would allow this much time to just watch these two kind of you know, goofing off and training. Yeah, I mean, this is really the training montage, but I mean, when I say the training montage, I mean, it lasts 40 minutes. <laughs> I like, I mean, I like it because it really does sell the friendship and I get into these two as friends. Well, you know, I, I think this, this movie kind of proves, you know, like the one size fits all rules of popcorn filmmaking don't really, you know, because like you said, like in a remake, they couldn't do this, whatever, but like, I feel like the filmmakers are smart enough that they hit, they realize, okay, the pace is slowing down. We're getting more into the backstory of, how, you know, when he met Ramirez and how they trained and all this. But it's like, you know, it buys you a lot of goodwill having this mentor character, whatever, being Sean Connery, portrayed by yeah. Sean Connery. Like, it really does. Like like you said, like, <laughs> if it was just a generic actor in this role... Like, like they probably would have had to cut these scenes way down, but they're like, fuck that, we're not cutting Sean Connery's part down, you know what I mean? And the thing is, I kind of find it hard to believe that Sean Connery gave a damn about this movie, Yeah. but that just proves how amazing he is, and that he's still, like, this might be him phoning it in, but there's still just, like, an undeniable, right. like, screen presence to him that works, and you really <laughs> like this character. I love the scene on that cliff of the guys swinging their swords, and it's clearly guys, that, like, stunt guys in wigs and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, like... You know, and that's another thing, too, is, like, it's hard, it's hard for, you know, a lot of people to imagine, but, like, this, uh, Connery's career is pretty on the downside, too, from what I, what I you know, gather from this point oh, yeah. in time, you know? I mean, he, he put down that diaper in Zardoz or whatever it was. <laughs> it was rough going for a couple of years. I mean, he had to come back to do another Bond film in the 80s, which he did, you know, promised he would never do, so. Yeah, exactly. Not only that, but an unofficial Bond film. Mm-hmm. I think this would probably have been like the year after, maybe two years after that one. But I mean, you really too like it's you really only get this sequence with them. I mean, Ramirez does yeah. not stick around this film very long. No. But the nice thing about it being this long too is if you care at all about Highlander two, which it's debatable whether you should, you know, <laughs> at least the, this whole sequence in this film sells their friendship enough that you are excited to see them kind of reunited in that movie, even if it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, I will say, you know, even seeing all these films multiple times in the franchise, and 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 a big a big part of like why I put up with the nonsense of Highlander two and three is because I do like Lambert so much. Mm -hmm. But like, 
you know, it, it kind of like dawned on me rewatching this for the, you know, the other night was like in terms of actually liking the character, like feeling some sympathy for the character, starting to like, you know, enjoy the character of McCloud, like it really is not until this point in the movie with the flashbacks with Ramirez that you start to see the goofy side of McLeod and start, mm-hmm. you know, you, like you start rooting for him in a way because you realize, like, okay, this, you know, this guy didn't start out as just some evil fucker like the Kurgan or, you know, just like, like there are good immortal characters out there that are just, you know, like regular people, so to speak. You know, I'm mean, always, they, be, they become hardened over the centuries and shit. And- well, I think that's why the Ramirez character is important too because, I mean, he finds McLeod and does not try to kill him. Like, he actually introduces him to this world and says, I'm going to trade you and help you you know, figure this all out. Yeah. And it's, and it's nice to know that there are mortals who do that too, who are like, look, I'm not playing the game at this point. I'm just going to try and help you along. Yeah. Cause I mean, Ramirez is the old hand. Like he, you know, he talks about, you know, you know, he, when he, that point where he kind of, he kind of gives the shtick of his, um, you know, his name and where he's from and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and he starts dropping some hints about, um, you know, quite how old he actually is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's just like, yeah, I mean, he, he totally comes in almost like the the big brother character. By the way, during that training montage, they were fighting up on that mountain, and Connor like knocked his sword out of his hands and it went flying off the mountain. I know. And I just remember like, geez, that's kind of got to be annoying. Now they got to go down and find that thing. And... <laughs> well, they're immortal. They probably just jumped off, <laughs> broke all their bones, <laughs> and then waited to heal, and they probably go. I will say one thing about Sean Connery, you know, not even trying to do a Spanish accent, that does kind of work to what you just said, is the idea that maybe he's been around so long that he did end up spending more of his life in this region, you know? Yeah, I mean, he... Kind of buy into that if you want to, if you want to just bypass the the logic of it. Well, that's the thing, too, is, like, they totally kind of spin it that way when he kind of mentions he, you know, drops a few places that he's been and he's been around for so long. So, I mean, in all realism, like, your accent would change. You wouldn't keep an accent for hundreds of years, you know? There's this vampire. There's a straight to DVD vampire film from the uh, like mid two thousands called The Thirst. I don't know if you ever saw it with Jeremy Sisto and Adam Baldwin. Actually, it's been forever, but I actually have seen that movie. Yeah, so I actually thought that was a pretty decent like DTV vampire film. But I remember one of the things I particularly liked about it is that Jeremy Sisto plays the the head vampire of that clan. He does a thing in the film where his accent keeps changing from scene to scene, and they actually said in the DVD like that was an intention of his. The idea being that. He because he's been around forever. He's been he's lived everywhere, and that keeps popping up in his personality. That he just can't. He's not even keeping track of it and doing it consciously. But sometimes he'll slip into Russian, or sometimes it'll be French, and it's just because he's lived everywhere for so long. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, they totally like. I totally buy the explanation with Connery. It's really more Lambert that is kind of like, well, there's no excuse here because at this point he's only been in the Highlands. <laughs> You know, I, I have to wonder because, you know, first of all, th- this like outdoor fair scene, like I hate to mention something so corny, but that outdoor fair scene or whatever it was where Ramirez is trying to convince uh, uh, McLeod that he has to leave this woman because it's going to be a heartbreak, you know, because mm-hmm. she's going to age and he's not. But that scene oh, with the kids around, it always reminded me of the, the you're probably too young, you don't probably don't even notice, Trevor, but the music video for Men Without Hands sa- Safety Dance. Oh, of course I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that is really, like, the costumes and shit. But um, I wonder for productions back then how much of these costumes they had a handmade 
and how much were actually around. Because it seemed like there were like a lot of uh, movies back then <laughs> being made about this time period. Like, I don't even know what the budget for this movie was, but it's there's really nothing of this movie that, you know... I mean, it might, it might seem low budget compared to movies that are now with endless CGI or whatnot, but... I mean, this movie doesn't seem like it's lacking in budget or scope. No, I certainly never. I never certainly thought of this as a low budget film when I was, you know, into it as a kid or anything. I mean, and I, I feel like watching it now with what you said with the sets and the costumes, this feels exactly like the kind of mid level budget movie that we don't get at all anymore. Yeah, like mid level, but it, according to Wikipedia, and I find this hard to believe. According to Wikipedia, the budget was nineteen million, but that seems a little high for mm-hmm. back then, because like. Back then, wasn't like the most expensive movie ever made. Ishtar like forty five million or something. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Movies are cheap back then. Now I will say the inside of this little home leaves a lot to be desired. Like oh yeah, and, and especially a chimney essentially. Especially when when the curtain comes in a little bit and the walls get broken down, like you, it, it's totally like a intentional Tim Burton like set. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I do. I love that though. I love. Oh, I do too. Yeah. yeah. I would find it more boring if it was weird weather. And, like, another thing, too, I gotta say, like, you know, not that, you know, because this is, you know, we haven't even talked about this pretty wild hairdo Sean Connery has going on, Um, which obviously we know Sean Connery, like, he never had crazy long hair like this or even that much hair at this point in time, but, like, I feel like... I feel like wigs in movies now somehow, somehow are like way ter- more terrible now than they were in the 80s. Like, I wasn't that distracted by movie wigs back then the way I am now. Yeah, but right when you were, the problem is right when you were saying that, Kurgan came in with that wig. That is true. It is like a dead <laughs> so, cat wig. It's like he showed up just to spite you. So maybe the quality of the wig depends on like who's wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Connery just knows how to wear a wig, man. Yeah, he, he slipped it on with these. I mean, obviously, we don't have to mention you know hollywood wig, wig making and 300 million dollar movies like fantastic four <laughs> <laughs> i always feel i always get kind of mad at ramirez at this point for not just finishing kurgan off right when he got that neck wound on him yeah he kind of like paused and like it, it seemed more like a rookie mistake mm-hmm. that he wouldn't keep slicing but i do i love this whole sequence where they're destroying the castle as they're going up the steps yeah. and it ends with them just fighting on the steps with no wall surrounding them it looks great i mean yeah it looks i'm I, i'm sure kids would watch this day and be like this looks so cheesy but right. it just has a look that i love and, and i miss from films i mean you know much i'd say not even in the last year really the last six months much has been made about you know films like star wars force awakens whatnot and uh i guess lost world last summer like a lot of people really get a boner about practical effects and like i mean all these movies recently that kind of been riding that wave have definitely been more practical than you know recent years but like i want to see a movie really go back and be as practical as like this movie is you mm-hmm. know what i mean like i don't know like i, I like in there, there's a, i think there's a fear that it won't be spectacular enough for modern audiences but i mean i don't think modern audiences can really argue with stuff that like looks real i mean this is a fake ass set but it looks real compared to most cgi you see in a movie mm-hmm and it adds, like, there's a theatricality to it that just works. Like, this looks like... Yeah, you, my, could almost be, you could be watching this scene play out on a stage with this kind of set and them destroying it. And then when the 
the castle falls down, the sky looks like a backdrop, but again, that just adds to the theatricality of it. Yeah, I mean, it's much more mood and atmosphere. I mean, just the idea that these guys are, you know, I don't even know what you would call this building. It's not a castle. It's, I mean, maybe it was a ca- small castle or it almost seems like a primitive lighthouse type thing. But, but whatever this building was, the fact that these guys are s- destroying this old giant stone building with just a traditional sword fight like it definitely does bring that theatricality that you don't see i'm watching this on like mute right now and i'm just thinking this sequence should just have like a dragon force song playing over it (laughs) yeah this would be a great dragon force music video who knows maybe on youtube somewhere that exists probably Man, he he really did get the Kurgan pretty good over and over, and then it just Kurgan was too much of a beast, I guess. I feel like the, I feel like the wound or whatever he did on um, Ramirez is very slight. I don't. It's hard to believe he would really go down. Now that's yeah, look how cool this looks, man. Yeah, the lightning. And that's like some animated ass lightning, kids. Yeah. You, don't, you don't see shit. I think I think Connery, like you said, man, like that's some that's a movie star there, man, with this ridiculous character that you know a lot of other actors would have just bungled. Like he brings this like dignity to it and this this presence to it, and even his death scene is like like even though he's getting killed, it's like man, that's a fucking hero right there. You know, like, so much has been made out of Tim Burton being a Ed Wood fan, being an old <coughs> movie fan, but I feel like fucking Tim Burton on his best day couldn't recreate something like this. <laughs> I mean, especially now with all his bullshit CGI, but even in his Pee-wee's Big Adventure days, he couldn't come up with shit this good. Yeah, I've... Kurgan, that's that is not where you want to be for the quickening. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the lightning's you're you're like staying on the barely cliff of some stairs, and lightning's going to come down. Something about this scene um, had a real you know fighting in that castle and breaking apart. It had a real time bandits vibe to me. <laughs> yeah. This is actually it's really strange that um, I mean so the scene just cuts out there, and we'll later find out that he did rape her. Yeah. But when we catch back up with the flashbacks later, there's real no indication given that because it's eventually revealed to be a surprise to Connor to find that out. Right. And it's very, as, you know, with all this discussion the last few years about, you know, rape culture and how that kind of is depicted on film and people kind of shying away from it or, you know, some people saying they won't watch a film that has that in it. It's just odd how nonchalantly that's treated in this movie. I don't know if I feel like comfortable with that or not. I don't That's just that she would not have any effects of it, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, I guess the idea is that she's doesn't, she's trying to, like, not tell Connor just to not bother him, but... Right. Yeah. I mean, she clearly hid it from him. I mean, because, like, before that rape, like, whatever, like, the scene ends with uh, Kurgan grabbing her by the throat. Like, when you watch it for the first time, you think just, like, oh, that's... He killed her, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then later, when we go back to another flashback of that time period, um, you know... 
McLeod's with her and we realize, oh, like, you know, she survived or whatever happened. You know, we don't really know what happened exactly. Yeah. But it's kind of hard to believe that the Kurgan didn't just outright kill her. But I guess, in a way, he thought that raping would be more like the evil thing. Uh, I remember when Doritos bags looked like that. Yep. This is where, like, this whole sequence here is where Lambert's hair is at the dumpiest looking. Yeah. I feel like all these scenes of him standing in the dark looking out windows, though, I feel like Tim Burton stole this shit for Batman. (laughs) Yeah. I really like this relationship with him and his assistant. And uh, this sequence here is one of the big additions. I remember when this came out as a director's cut, this was a sequence that was really heavily advertised because this was not in theatrical. And it's showing showing the origin of him uh, finding her as a little girl. Yeah, and and it really is like a two and a half minute scene. But A, just a scene by itself, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. And B, it explains so much of the relationship between him and her. Like, I was like, why did they ever cut this? Because they yeah. cut the movie from the director or international version from 116 to 110. I mean, they only trimmed six minutes out. Like, yeah. Like, what? what and I do s- love it. It's like, it's a moment where it's great because then you do realize that despite the fact that she's older than him in the modern day, she really is like his daughter. And I think right. it's just such an interesting idea. Yeah, and they're so, like, another thing, too, is I like that it, you know, without this scene, too, we really don't know for sure that he you know, was really globetrotting throughout the years, like, like you know, like Ramirez was, you know? Mm-hmm. These sequences are, of course, uh, what led to, like, what would become the general conceit of the TV show, which heavily dealt in every episode, giving you a different flashback of Duncan's life and showing all the different things he's done through the ages. Right. Which, which does become the idea, like, if you did restart Highlander today, because clearly you would restart it with the idea of doing at least three, right? That's what everything does. A trilogy, yeah. And that's where you could, but that's still a, an idea I think that works, and that you can go back and show all these different adventures the characters had through the years. I'd almost, now that I'm saying that, I kind of would almost rather just the TV show come back. Than... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, would you have the TV show come back, or would you have the TV show be like a reboot, the way the TV show originally was? Well, that's what I mean, yeah. yeah. But I feel like Highlander almost, in a way, is better suited to a TV show as as a long-running narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the only thing that would hinder it as a TV show would be... Budget? Yeah, well, yeah, the budget, just because of the traveling, and I, I think you'd be forced to go to, like, some Romania's place that would have to double for a lot of places, and mm-hmm. maybe it wouldn't work as well, but, I mean, it definitely, because, like, because, you know, like, it's, it just narratively, it's crazy how much, fla- how many flashbacks are in this film, you know? Like, it's basically... But, I mean, if the, the original, the, the Highlander TV show did that a lot, and they couldn't have been dealing with that high of a budget. Yeah, I mean, I would have to kind of re-see it and see. Well, I'm sure it was corny, but I mean, I you know, I'm a, I, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they were filming in every corner of Vancouver they could. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I like I think probably the best thing you could do for a TV show is if like you mapped out like for maybe not shot two seasons back to back but if you like mapped out what you want your flashbacks to be for a couple seasons at a time and then you could shoot you know all the different locations that way because yeah. because the, the modern day stuff is pretty i won't say cheap to do but like just like in this film like whatever your modern day location is like new york like you could shoot all that and you know one chunk or whatever yeah, look at him there. Is this like is this a sex symbol? This guy, I don't know. I feel like he's more his character from the Cecilian in, in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> if 
you know, Lambert was the most uh, <coughs> ethnically diversely casted like actor. Like, like he's like French guy. Pretty much in real life, when I, even when I see interviews for Highlander type stuff, he's speaking in French and it has subtitles. But mm-hmm. you know, he speaks mostly French. Um, he's cast as a Scottish man, and this then like his big follow up role was as a uh, Sicilian for. I think it was Michael Cimino's film, right? The Sicilian or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like this guy actually cast as an ancient Asian god in Mortal Kombat. Yeah, a, a, yeah, Asian god. I mean, this this guy will play anything but a Frenchman. <laughs> I think the only time he he well, to be fair, there probably are a lot of foreign films we don't know about, but the only time he really played a, a French guy, right, was when he did the Luc Besson movies. Uh, yeah, and what the subway is great. I don't know if you've ever seen that. You know, I, I saw it like literally on like the Sundance Channel in like the late '90s or something. So I mean, it's pretty much like I've never seen it. But mm. um, Old Lambert, man. I mean, he still got. To be fair, you know, you keep ragging on Lambert's haircut. He's still got the same haircut now. To be <laughs> but uh, only fifty-eight years old. But when you see him in films now, he seems like a much older man. I have to be honest. <laughs> Unless he's lying other, about like, his age, I don't know. Are there any other Lambert films that you're a big fan of? Because I know I particularly, I really liked Fortress. Yeah, like, um, see, that's kind of why I was into Lambert was it was more his, um, his like cheap shit. <laughs> you know, honestly, I like Fortress. I love The Hunted. I mean, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I remember really liking that. I, I saw that in the theater. I, yeah, I haven't seen Hunted since a long time. I also like Gunman. I actually bought the Laserdisc of Gunman. But, oh, uh, I love uh, I love Mean Guns. Yeah, Mean Guns is awesome with, um, oh shit, what's his name? Uh, Tom Matthews. And Ice-T. Yeah, Ice-T. And they're just in that fucking... Prison, yeah. Yeah, just shooting each other up and shit. I think that was the one Tom Matthews... Unless Tom Matthews was in one, it was like exactly the same, but I could be wrong. Let's see. Uh, no, Tom Matthews is in Mean Guns, yeah. Yeah. Directed oh, by Albert King. Yeah, I, I forgot that part of it. I need to see Mean Guns again. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long time for me, too. That that was, like, a definite, like, every week on Cinemax, you could find Mean Guns. Yeah, that, like, you know, we say direct-to-video or whatever, but, like, I would say some of those movies were really more, like, direct-to-like Cinemax and Showtime, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, one of the, I feel like the last um, Lambert movie I actually remember coming to theaters that he was the star of was Adrenaline, Fear of the Rush. Really? And even that, I think that had like, I mean, I just, I know that was in the theaters because I remember, like, I feel like I almost saw it in the theater, but ended up not seeing it. Yeah, that's weird. I, did, I didn't, but I it, didn't. It, it says, probably had a really small release and that was probably like the last gasp of him as like any kind of marketable stuff. Yeah. It was. I, think, I, remember, I remember even a dimension. big, I remember people talking about how short that movie was when it came out and I just checked and it's only an hour and 17 minutes. Hey, I'm looking at the running time. United, okay, the Weinsteins did a hack job on that because it came out from Dimension. Germany. The German version of the movie, the runtime is 94 minutes. United States, 77 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Box also office, 37,000. <laughs> directed and written by Albert Pune. It was. I kind of feel bad for Lambert. I mean, I'm actually a big Albert Pune fan, but Lambert doesn't deserve some Albert Pune for the most part. <laughs> I mean, Mean Guns was good, but he don't deserve to go all the way down the Albert Pune uh, <laughs> hole there. <laughs> I have to say, this is, like, the only part of the movie where he's, like, kind of romancing this this woman that, like, the movie gets a little weird. Like, this, like, 
like, you know, when they did the chop down to 110 minutes, like, I'm surprised this shit, like, didn't go instead of, like, the Nazi flashback. Oh, she's got some, those are some serious earrings she's got going. Yeah, it looks like she's going to stab her own neck, slit her own throat there. She definitely has that 80s movie look to her as well. Um, yeah. And that she's definitely not, and I, I, I do not mean this in any way, but the people listening to the show know what I mean. Yeah. She's not sexy enough to be like a modern uh, mm-hmm. lead in a film. No. <laughs> but that's she's... but that's kind of what I like is that, you know, it's, she's just kind of, I mean, she's good looking, but they, yeah. don't play that, they don't play that up. They're not trying to make her look like too hot to be a forensics, you know, expert in the police force. Yeah, I mean, she definitely has some, you know, 80s style or whatever, but yeah, she's, I like, I, I think the right way to put it was they didn't want to cast somebody distractively, like, mm-hmm. overly good-looking, but, like, they wanted some believability in the role. They wanted a woman that, like, you know, seemed like she had some substance, a woman that was in her 30s and not in her early 20s playing a scientist, you know what I mean? When he left her apartment, he just walked out into, like, the London fog or something. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was weird. Now, here we get to the aftermath of Ramirez being killed and all that. Mm-hmm. And, like, I never quite understood where was he when that happened. Do you know? Yeah, I they say, I think they say something about how he was just out, I don't know, grocery shopping or something. Yeah, in, like, the middle of the night when the Kirkin mm-hmm. showed up. But they kind of, like, rebuild or start living in this smaller building, I guess. It, now, it, here we are getting the most, and you said it's your favorite song, but it's also the most on-the-nose song right. possible. Yeah. The love song. Who wants to live forever, basically just hammering home the point of how miserable this might be to be immortal and be in love with someone. Yeah, this is kind of the final wrap-up montage flashback of, like, his life with her. Like, we see, you know, we're really going through the years now, and she's starting to get older and stuff. And then it kind of, like... Like, you kind of have to pay close attention to realize it's through a through-the-years montage, or else it seems like she just aged out in, like, two weeks or something. But, yeah. But, yeah, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, like, this was the part of the movie the other night when I was watching it, like, it actually kind of choked me up. I started getting a little emotionally invested in a little bit. I was like, I was like, wow, this movie's actually, you know, I mean, it is a style-over-substance movie, but I was like, you know, this topic of immortality and a, a, mm. a, a you know relationship i guess you could say like it's really popular now in pop culture films like twilight and shit and i don't think those films really handled this that aspect of the story quite as well as this well, this this really endears you to mcleod as well the fact mm-hmm. that he stays with her and still yes. loves her as she gets old yeah whereas robert pattinson was like listen i gotta turn you into a vampire yeah, right, right now where you get too old don't get now, old on me, Bella. This old age makeup certainly is nothing impressive. No, but, uh, yeah, this is, you know... You know what I liked is when they uh, they have a chance to kind of revisit this time in his life in a Highlander Endgame, and they actually brought the same actress back. Really? And she had aged to... I mean, not to this level, no, obviously. No, yeah, but, she's like an eight But we do, we do see her, like, it's kind of years on after this, and they, they brought her back, and it was kind of cool that, you know, just, just, just the fact they got the original actress, I thought was a nice touch and showed that they kind of still cared. That is cool. And I will say, for all like the for all the kind of shenanigans and tomfoolery they kind of dealt the series, uh, Davis and Panzer, the two guys who ran it, did really seem to care about it. Oh yeah, and, and did their best to kind of shepherd it for a long time. And I think I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's pretty do. frustrating to them that it's not around anymore. And I'm sure they'd love to get that remake going. But yeah, but but you know, like as crazy as it would be, I almost think, and obviously he can't do it because, like we said, the problems with his eyesight and shit. Is I almost think you would be better off 
trying to do if you want to talk if you want to like whatever as a franchise i think you always be better off coming up with some bullshit way to bring lambert back than doing a remake because as we've seen with like robocop and all these other things that try to restart a franchise or start a new franchise like <laughs> like even the friday the 13th remake which made a ton of money that's like it just you know these things can come out and make make a quick buck but then it doesn't like restart or re- or make a new franchise the way they yeah. expect you know well you know i saw uh, like i said i was watching that interview with him the same interview where he talked about finding a new queen and he actually had a pretty good attitude about it that i have to give it to him cuz it's a pretty humble and not egotistical answer they asked him you know if would you be willing to appear in the remake and he did say he's like the only way i'd want to do it is if it's just a quick little cameo that's like a wink for the fans because i am too old to be in this now and it's not my thing he's like i'd like you know a scene where maybe i just bump into the guy and and the fans can have a laugh or whatever but that's really all you need me for i mean it doesn't seem to be the popular whatever opinion but but like i really like it when the original actors come back and play a smaller supporting role, but they play a completely different role, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I, I think I just think that's interesting. Like, I mean, obviously he couldn't do the sword fighting and shit, but, like, I wouldn't even mind if he came back and played a different character more in the Ramirez-type role, you know? Yeah, that would be cool. I do love that shot of how he leaves his, his broadsword in there. And it's pretty fucking, after, you know, she dies, he just fucking burns the vill- you know, their home to the ground. <laughs> This this is this is really funny too because like when he comes and he, he meets this um, other immortal guy, um, like first I thought it was the guy from the Allstate commercials. It kind of looks like a younger <laughs> version of him. <laughs> Dennis Dennis yeah, yeah, but, but it wasn't him. But um, but yeah, like it's it's kind of funny that these two immortal guys are just palling around and have been mm-hmm. for years. You know, like kind of like how him and Ramirez were. You know, they realize like, hey, we're not really enemies. We just you know. Seems like almost like they kind of look out for each other in a way. That is, I mean, that, that's a pretty interesting idea. It's not really explored a lot until I guess you get to end game. The idea of what if it comes down to you and a friend of yours? Yeah, what do you do? Now, what do you? Okay, this this scene here, the camera's a little farther away. When I was watching this other night, the shots of Lambert on the bridge, uh, he started looking like a. Uh, the younger, earlier version of Thomas Jane to me in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a, one of the funnier flashbacks. So really, really, I guess one of the only moments where the film just dips into pure comedy. Right. And, like, I kind of, you know, like, this scene and the scene before where he went underwater and all that, like, I kind of wonder if that element of comedy would even be present in the Highlander remake, you know? Yeah, you would hope so, because these moments are great. Yeah, and I think of, it is, and I think it's another reason maybe this was an early kind of cult film, right? Is that it is a, it does have a tone that's hard to nail down. Yeah, because I mean, even, this... even the serious scenes with the Kurgan are like so yeah. wily coyote esque. Like, and there's just some great Lambert moments here, like when he thinks he's blind because the wig is down below his eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he just lets the guy in the in the you know the fencing duel just stab him over and over. And the best part of this scene, obviously, is the little manservant guy of the rich mm-hmm. guy who keeps, like, kissing his face. Oh, well done, sir. Well done. He's slayed him. He keeps re-slaying him because he won't die. See, like, may- maybe a TV show version could, with the flashbacks, could do more, like, little scenes like this. You know what <coughs> yeah. I mean? 
that wouldn't require a whole lot of budget, you know, because instead of going into like the main, you know, mansion there and all that, they just kind of showed in the distance. This guy looks like Vincent Cassell. You know, I, it's funny you say because I was thinking the exact same thing. Okay, was what was that movie? Um, what it was Brotherhood of the Wolf, right? Yeah, Brotherhood of the Wolf. I was love it, that was film. it? Wasn't he wearing some like oh yeah powder wig shit like that in there? Now we go back to the Kurgan staying at the Sid Vicious Hotel here. <laughs> Wearing a Mad Max jacket. Yeah, it would have been great if, like, walking down the hallway of this shitty hotel, he would have walked by, like, Schwarzenegger going to his shitty hotel room <laughs> in Germany. Which, speaking of which, I never even thought of it till now. Do you think Kurgan's kind of, like, character and all that, like, do you think any of this was inspired by the Terminator, which just came out, like, a couple years before this? I don't know. It's hard to say because I just feel like in general, Kurgan's appearance in this really does seem influenced by punk culture at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but it is that thing where, I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you and I both watch a lot of the films from this time period. But I'm kind of obsessed with punks from 80s movies. Yeah. Uh, and more particularly the way that old white men thought punks looked. And so right. there's a there's a real disconnect between what punks really were at the time and what they look like in movies but i love the version in movies well even here the the clerk guy is kind of like a 38 year old punk yeah. you know what i mean which you really wouldn't see but maybe you would because this is about 10 years after punk's heyday you know yeah so it's he's just kind of still holding on to it now here's a character yeah. i love this just like kind of random <laughs> vigilante character yeah like this but it really does like you so this seems like the other night when i was watching this my friend i was thinking like god this seems like it comes out of nowhere but then i remember that this was a big deal in New York at the time, right? This isn't that. Right. I mean, you know, we have Death Wish and other films like that. The idea of people who are trying to clean up the city, which was a, like a cesspool at this point. I mean, this to put it in context of people not watching the film like that, I mean, this guy is pretty much a, a more stripped-down version of The Punisher, mm-hmm. like, really. And, like, yeah, you know, it really fucked with my memory because I always remember this scene in the movie and I always thought this guy was an immortal that was just cheating by, like, trying to use guns and then go in and chop their heads off. But, no, he really was just a whacked-out vigilante type. Yeah. And here the Kurgan is fighting uh, McLeod's uh, friend, the African prince dude. And it's just kind of weird that you would just want to gun down some guys that were sword fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I guess... he's wearing like a shirt that's talking about like bombing Russia or something. Yeah. Too. I'm sure this is like a commentary and a spoof of, you know, mm-hmm. the vigilante, vigilante era of American films. Bernard, you know? Bernard Getz and, you know. Yeah. Okay. It is weird that Bernard Getz was considered a hero for some period of time. Got some great squib hits on the Kurgan stomach there. Now I wonder if, let's say that he had happened to like aim at his neck and blew his head off. Right. Where would Kurgan's energy go? I don't know. It, it probably just would dissipate, like to everywhere. I would think because it seems like it comes out and hits the area and then goes into the mortal. You know. Mm-hmm. I have to say though, I mean, obviously we've been you know, gushing over the cinematography of this movie, but just looking at this, especially this dirty-ass alleyway, to see how much backlighting, like, it must have took hours and hours to light every single set of this movie, you know what I mean? 
because like they don't really cheat it like they show everything from multiple angles and there's always that like heavy atmospheric lighting and smoke and everything yeah this was the quickening here that i thought was kind of bullshit like where the body like levitates yeah it just kind of i mean that's cool but like i don't know like it wasn't nearly as grand as like the one that um yeah this is just kind of like looking like they're shining a spotlight on him yeah, it seemed like they ran out of time or something. Like all, another collection of great 80s New York extras. Yeah, like all the fake hookers and shit. I mean, there now is... What is, this, what is this old couple doing here? Where do you think they were going? <laughs> yeah, like, okay, like, for people not watching the DVD, like, these, like, really old people... I think this was shot on a stage in, like, London or somewhere, though. Mm-hmm. Because these people don't even look American, all the extras and shit. I mean, I guess there is fire coming up. That's pretty good, all the windows blowing up. I guess I was wrong to criticize this quickening <laughs> a little bit. I just, I don't know, for some reason I thought the Madison Square Garden one was cooler. But, um... But yeah, this, like, old couple, like, this is literally, like, an alleyway of nothing but hookers and pimps. And, like, they just happened to stroll down there to see what was going on. Maybe they were looking to score some crack or some shit. <laughs> and I don't understand, why did the Kurgan take the old people's car when he just stole that vigilante guy's, like, awesome train Unless thing? Unless he wanted to, like, terrorize this old lady. Yeah. And this, I do love this moment where he calls her mom. I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess maybe, unless there's a movie in between that I'm forgetting about or whatever, I guess Clancy Brown maybe got this role off of playing that weird-ass albino rapist in the movie Bad Boys. What about the, the juvenile well, what came, detention? What came thing? first? Did this come first or did The Bride come first? Because he played Frankenstein's monster in The Bride also. Did he? I totally yeah. forgot that that was him. Let's check out some Clancy Brown IMDb. I mean, that's a great. That's a great film too, The Bride. I don't know if you're a fan, but you know it's been forever since I've seen it. But I, I saw it a bunch of times as a kid. That's on one cable. that I really wish like Scream Factory somebody would kind of put out there and allowed to get rediscovered. Holy, I mean, granted he's done like a lot of like voices and cartoons, but Clancy Brown has 243 credits. Man, he was in Hail Caesar as well. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, wasn't he one of the old uh, communist dudes or something? No, he was. Uh, he was another actor. He was playing Clooney's like uh, lieutenant in. Oh yeah, that's that's right. Because they were standing there having that conversation, looking at uh, mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So him and Lambert, there had to be some. Um... The Cohens must love this movie. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the bride was eighty five. He played Victor, and then. Uh, 86 was Highlander. It's weird for the IMDb credits. They have him credit it. I think it, he definitely had to be... It was because of his, like, whatever in uh, The Bride. Because he's credited on IMDb for this movie as Victor Kruger slash The Kurgan. And he played Victor in The Bride. So He signs his name Victor Kruger, uh, or Victor Kurgan, at the, in the hotel. Does he? Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I'm looking at the thing. Yeah, yeah, I totally saw the bride a lot as a, as a kid. Cause Sting, I totally forgot Sting was mm-hmm. in it. Jennifer Beals, I thought was extra. I always thought this. I thought she's extremely underrated. 
Oh, yeah. I thought she should have had a better career. Like, Well, I mean, she did have actually a really good career in the 80s, but I felt like she had the talent to... Because, I mean, even now you see her, she doesn't look like that old of a woman at all. It's weird. I'm surprised she doesn't get cast more now, too, off of directors who grew up on those 80s films. Right. I think we're finally starting to see a little bit of uh, Helen Slater getting some props, finally, right? Mm-hmm. She was missing, missing action for too long. That was a great headline in New York Post, Headhunter 3, Cop 0. <laughs> yeah, and that feels like a real New York Post headline. It does. And this is what I mean. Like, I I, uh, I recently watched a documentary all about 42nd Street during the 70s and 80s, you know, the grindhouse theaters and everything, and I do. I just find myself oddly nostalgic for New York at this time, even though I clearly never went there. Yeah, never and, been there. Yeah. And I mean... Look, don't get me wrong, I'm a pansy at the end of the day. It's not like I would be like, yeah, I can't wait to go somewhere where I'm going to get mugged and have to avoid know. You know, crackheads. But at the same time, there's just such a character to it that, I, that I'm that i fascinated by. And that, then you look at New York now, and it's just so antiseptic and clean. And, and there's just something about the sleaziness of New York that I just love seeing in old films and, and feel like I would visit it if I could. Well, the thing that is just like awesome, because obviously you know we love a lot of genre films from the 70s and 80s. I mean, I get so nostalgic... I mean, you could do it now somewhere else, but I get so nostalgic just by all the damn movie theaters that were everywhere. Exactly, yeah. That, you know, I mean, 42nd Street, when I see those pictures, I'm just like, man, I would have... I don't care if you there's a chance of getting mugged or whatever. I would have been there every day if I could. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely would have been the place to go catch a double, triple feature. You could just made your way down the street hitting up to... You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it would have sucked that, you know, uh, you probably would have been sitting in puddles of piss half the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I watched that... Um, First time I really sat down all the way through and watched it, but I watched it the other night on HBO Go and really liked it, was that uh, late 80s uh, cop movie Shakedown with um, Peter Weller and um, Mm -hmm. fucking, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but um, the the old gray mush hair guy, the guy from uh, Sam whatever, the guy always does the Coors ads and shit. But anyway, like, his, his, the cop Sam character. Sam Elliott? Yeah, Sam Elliott. Yeah, Sam Elliott, like, he just, in that movie, he just lives in a grindhouse theater <laughs> for Second Street. Like, they actually show him, like, the first thing they show him, he wakes up with, like, with a 40 or whatever, and, like, he goes and brushes his teeth in the bathroom before he goes to, like, start doing police work and shit. This character here looks like a cartoon character. Yeah, and it's, it's really funny, too, because, like, they really play him like the computer nerd, and he's, I'm surprised they don't have him have him, like, you know, outrageously huge computers in this room, but, like, they say he has to work in this, like, this tiny, like, this, uh, like, really climate-controlled cold-ass room where else the yeah. computers are overheat. Now, this computer, I don't even know if computers could do this now. It takes <laughs> yeah. a, it takes a bunch of, uh, signatures that they collected over the years from birth and death certificates and, like, kind of composites that the different letters all you have been signed by the same person who's now signing their name as Russell Nash. So they totally, this guy, just from signatures, he put together that somebody has been assuming the uh, identity of actually dead infants. Like, I guess, stillborn infants, I guess, mm-hmm. is the way to say it. Yeah. And uh, he's putting two and two together here. This seems like That's something too not smart. not a very good drawing of the Kurgan. <laughs> no, it, it actually looks more like O.J. Simpson in all honesty. <laughs> Yeah, this is a great sequence. You know, that's what I love about Highlander is it's such a, it's what I would call a high concept film, you know, mm-hmm. but like it doesn't, you know, just like with all the story beats, how it kind of like, you know, saved them and didn't blow 
the load like all the way where once like even here like we're let me hit the counter here we are almost an hour and a half into a basically two hour movie and we're still getting mythology spooled out to us that the um immortals cannot fight on holy ground yeah granted we're never really told what would happen if they did right but i find it surprising i mean it, it's it surprises me that kurgan is a character that would live that would stay true to that you know right i mean he, he clearly, follows the rules clearly disrespects the place or his appearance here but mm-hmm. but he does yeah he doesn't try to attack the cloud here it's really it's really weird now that i think about this trevor um you know like i mean who knows like we said what the rules would be or what would happen or whatever if they started fighting in here but you see a lot of like really strange sci-fi and horror movies uh, of the '80s that just like respect like you know Catholicism or the rules of Catholicism or Christianity or whatever. Whereas now, I feel like a film would be like like oh that's just a superstition. It doesn't really matter. Like you know what I mean? like, but the, you know this you know the holy whatever ground you know like really does hold something here. Now, why do you think Kurgan just like chopped all his hair off, like really in a really poor way here? Well, I mean, because that photo, that drawing of him is out, right? That's so why I, I right. think he even says something like, "I'm in, I'm incognito right now" or something. <laughs> right? So he's trying to change his appearance, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> so that's he, obviously now more people will pay attention to him. Yeah, because he looks really strange. Because now his head is like increased in size, like twice. Mm-hmm. Like he has like a big like like it, like his actual head almost looks like a big brain. It's very you know. And he has, like, big cuts in it and stuff. And, like, you have to look closely, because he did leave, like, one little hair braid, I guess, on the side. Mm-hmm. But he has, like, his, you know, his awesome skull helmet from earlier. It seems like he has that skull helmet tattooed, tattooed on his tattooed head now. Yeah. Right on his head. And I do love that he put safety pins into his neck uh, yeah. over the scar. <laughs> to hold it together, I guess. I don't know. Clancy Brown is just having so much fun in this scene, though, that you can't help but get into it. I mean, it is chewing scenery, but it's not chewing scenery the way a lot of actors do it, where it's like, this movie's shit, I'm just going to go in here and fuck around. Like, mm-hmm. he really is committed to the character with everything he does, you know? They do talk in the, they talk in the DVD about how, at this point uh, in the filming, he was so into this character that this was actually a point where he was, he was hard to deal with on set, because he really just was the Kurgan on set at all times. <laughs> This is interesting. I don't know if we, like... So you're watching the DVD of this as well as I am. And the DVD has an audio commentary from Russell Mulcahy, uh, Davis, and Panzer. But then for some reason, the Blu-ray release of this, which has the exact same cover and is from the same company, has a different audio commentary that's just Russell Mulcahy. That's bizarre. I thought that was really strange. It is strange. So this clearly... I wouldn't throw it out anyway because it has the crazy-ass metal sleeve thing that you slide into but also the queen soundtrack but it's a case of sometimes you got to keep your dvd even after you have the blu-ray mm-hmm. clearly lambert's had enough of his shit right now now this is because uh, you said the thing about um like the mythology and everything, it reminds me that when they made, I keep on bringing up Highlander Endgame because I know some like factoids about that. But in Highlander Endgame, they actually had a scene where an immortal did kill another on holy ground, and fans really like kind of bitched about that. 
Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and scene they actually sure. uh, re-edited it for the home video release to remove any references really? to it being holy ground, and it, and that kind of shows you. <laughs> That's a kind of indication of the way the first of the franchise would go with Davis and Panzer would kind of do something, people would hate it, and then they would just re-edit stuff to, like, kind of fit along. And obviously Highlander 2 being the ultimate example of that, which, I, man, we we almost will have to do a commentary for that just to talk about how, what an instance of a film coming out and nobody understanding it and just saying, like, well, you know what, we'll just give you a completely different version and hopefully yeah. this will shut you up. <laughs> hopefully they like this shit better. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, even though Highlander was a long-running series, unfortunately, the only one made in the 80s was this one, so we'll have to pick that up on another show, but yeah. I, th- I think we're going to do it. You guys might, if you're Highlander fans and you came to the 80s graveyard for the first time because of Highlander this, you might have to jump on over to probably Hillbilly DVD reviews eventually to catch Highlander 2 and 3. I'd be even game for doing in-game, because oh, yeah. you, you start getting some WWE wrestlers <laughs> <laughs> Making debuts and shit. Donnie Yen is in, in game as well. That's right. I actually forgot he was in that. No, like like this this part, like you're kind of like, why is he even bothered with this forensic whatever? Because like his assistant lady, who like he saved from the Nazis, you're like they seem like such a much better personality and love match. But then you're like, no wait, that's like his daughter. It'd be too yeah. weird. He, he he saw her grow up from a little girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do. You're, I would love this room. I would. I would love to have a room like this in a house. Oh, it's just so amazing. I mean, like you said, like there'd be nothing like on a day to day basis function. You know, other than it would be a like, perfect room to keep all your like tchotchkes, like all your stuff, oh, yeah. toys you've collected. Which I mean, obviously, you know, his cover to the to the the straight world or whatever here is that you know he's an antiques dealer, but obviously we know he really has all this old shit because he's been living mm-hmm. forever or whatever. But, like, how did he store this shit and keep it around forever? Did he just have storage units everywhere? Globe trotting with big trucks full of shit. And it's kind of funny because, like, a big part of this storyline is that, obviously, he needed to heal over losing his wife. He's been mourning her for hundreds of years, obviously. But he finally... Like, he really actually has to chase this woman quite a bit, I would say. He knows her for, like, four days, and, and yeah. that's what he finally needs to get over his wife. He's I guess like, just because she knows about swords? Yeah, you you know about swords. <laughs> Stab me. Fall in love with me. Which, that's one thing, and granted, I haven't seen the newer sequels in a while, but, like... At least this movie never did, like, that cheesy thing of, like, showing the wounds, like, close up, like, right before your eyes, you know what I mean? Well, I'm sure part of the reason they didn't is because they couldn't afford it. (laughs) Or just the technology back then would be really shitty. I'm surprised the film actually resisted the urge to to have a a fight scene in this location. Yeah. You think about how great this whole apartment is for, like, a multi-level sword fight, and then coming into this room and pulling swords off the walls and... Yeah, if if you think about it, like, where they end up having the final fight, which is very, it gets very grand and very epic, but the way they kind of been setting up this apartment of his is, like, you're right. Like, it, it would make more sense that, that you know, from a story telling sound, like, they would fight in there and kind of destroy everything in there, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Now, Highlander 3 is kind of almost a remake of this film, in a sense. Right. 
And do you remember when you get to the, like this sequence in Highlander Three? It just really becomes like a softcore porn, like a surprisingly <laughs> yeah. graphic sex scene. This one's, I mean, not for eighty standards, but by now, like him li- actually licking the nipple and everything—that's a little, it's a little racy compared to what you see now, even in yeah. an R-rated film. You know, I can't remember who plays the girl in Highlander Three. Oh, what's her name? Like Deborah Kara Unger? Is that it? Oh, that's who it was. Think, because he gets he gets Virginia Madsen in part two. Yeah, and she's looking great in that too. Oh yeah, like she's really got that curly haired, like awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you are. Deborah Carrie Unger was another one that I really liked too, and just dropped off the face of the map. Like she kind of started out playing, you know, kind of looker roles, but as time went on, she started getting into some dark shit in some movies, and she just kind of disappeared. Yeah. Basically, because they're just talking about love and all this. Who do you think? Because obviously they're all doing, especially Highlander Three. Mario Van Peebles really tries to Kurgan it up, but who do you think was the best non-Kurgan villain in the series? I think you got to give it to Ironside as Katana. Part yeah, two, I mean, it's, you can. I mean, Ironside's always great. Actually, you know what? Like Ironside is awesome. Even to like even there in that crazy scene where he like makes somehow makes that subway car go six hundred miles an hour. <laughs> but um, but I, I kind of like Mario Van Peebles better. I gotta be honest. You notice that the the bad guy in Highlander one, two, three, and four. Their names all start with K. You know, I never actually realized and then the that. source like screwed that up again. But but along with everything else, they forgot what rules they were following for the previous twenty years. <laughs> Yeah, because it's a Kurgan Katana. Uh, okay, what's Mario Van Peebles' name? Kane, I think. Yeah, it's Kane. I was just looking at. It. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It is, it and is then the bad guy in Endgame. And then the bad guy in Endgame is Jacob Kell. I'm Jacob Kell. <laughs> I actually like the. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about that one so much, but I always thought the motivation of the villain in Endgame is really cool. Where he doesn't want to kill Connor McCloud, he wants to just like kill everyone he cares about through eternity. I always like that idea. Like, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to tr- play the game. But I'm just going. Every time you fall in love with someone, I'll show up and kill them. It's kind of like uh, what they're trying to do with Spectre. Mm. James, I am the author of your pain. <laughs> <laughs> See, I gotta you know, give this movie credit too for being playful as hell. Because, like, instead of just having the Kurgan kidnap Lambert's girlfriend, like, there's a whole sequence of how he takes her on a joyride of like almost crashing the car that they're in and running over tons of pedestrians just yeah, to and scare I love, her. Like, the, the, the shots of him running over the pedestrians where they just do that kind of like weird like quick zoom in on people. Right. It's great. And I love the Kurgan. You know, we saw, we originally saw Kurgan as like an immortal or, you know, like uh, this kind of epic warrior, medieval right. warrior. And now here he is just this like punk guy listening to heavy metal music, goofing off, driving his car around. Yeah, he's clearly a guy who you know, has taken to modern times, whereas I feel uh, McLeod just more like sitting in his quiet room sulking, whereas, they, like, I could see the Kurgan actually, like, going to, like, concerts and getting in mosh pits and shit. Yeah, he should have been at that wrestling event, he'd probably be into it. <laughs> yeah, he would He would have gone in the <laughs> ring and beat everybody If up he had just him. lived a little longer, he would have been a big NWO fan. Oh, he would <laughs> This is pretty awesome with the dude on the motorcycle that he runs off the road. 
You don't get them crazy, like, over-flying-through-the-air stunts that much anymore in movies. I miss that shit. And this is the great, like, New York, New York cover from yeah, Queen. Yeah, from Queen. It's really, like, rugged. That's what I mean. Like, I feel like... And they actually go... This, they go to Silver Cup Studios, which is used a lot for, like, radio and TV, and then more and more in, in films. Highlander is actually one of the first movies to really, like... I mean, it, it is an actual studio where you film stuff, but it's kind of funny that Highlander used it as a location and, like, fucking... I don't know. It's 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 like kind of meta in a way that they he goes to a movie studio to have the final fight. You know, Kurgan sets it up that way. I was reading the other night about some of the shit that's shot there. It's mostly been TV shows, but some movies too. Mm-hmm. It's really old too. I think it's in Queens or somewhere. Let's see. Seen all oh, the Bronx. Like 30, 30 Rock shot there. Analyze that. You're Adam Sandler, you're one of your favorite Adam Sandler films, Big Daddy, Black Rain, the awesome Michael Douglas movie, Crush Groove, <laughs> Gangs in New York. Oh, the, every, you can't forget that. The uh, classic De Niro Pacino vehicle, Righteous Kill. Little, I, I did forget it. <laughs> little Nicky. <laughs> Yeah, it actually looks that 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 sign, that silver cup sign that they showcase so much, actually is still there to this day. So, I think it's a question for you, Goat. If this film came out today, pretty much as is, what do you think the critical reception would be? Because this is a film that, if you go back and maybe you did a little bit of research, I mean, it was really lambasted by critics at the time of just. Everyone could criticized it for just being, you know, mindlessly violent or right. said style or substance. But here we now know it's one of those films that does go on. He had this huge cult following, really picked up a, a life and home video. And do you think, like, now people would be willing to accept the kind of cheesiness of it just for how visually grand it is and exciting it is? Or do you think it would still get kind of attacked the same way? You know, that's a real tough call. And the reason I say that is... We seem to be in this kind of five-year pendulum swing back and forth with modern movies where we want a little bit of fun with our violence and our fantasy stories. And then we swing, after a couple years that, we always swing back and we want something really humorless and whatever. So, I mean, it would really depend, I would say. I don't, like... I don't, one thing is, like, I don't know if this concept would really go over too well. Like, even if it was shot, like, if you basically just remade this movie, like, you know, in super crisp, clear, 5K, whatever, modern, like, whatever, with the exact same photography, like, I think it would still look as stylish and all that. But I think maybe people would go after it more for the style over substance thing, the way people cut the nuts off Michael Bay for everything. And granted, Michael Bay does make some pure trash. Like, I wouldn't... <laughs> well, I would, it's interesting uh, that I saw so many early reviews criticizing it for style over substance because... And even I said that earlier, and I think it's true to a certain degree, but as you pointed out during this commentary, and is certainly true, is there are some themes in here definitely about immortality and right. the, the sadness of it and the loneliness of it. And I mean, clear, I mean, yeah, the movie's more interested in sword fights and decapitations, but it's not like it's completely soulless or mindless. Well, you know how everything now, like, action-wise or whatever, big adventure, like, always has that really forced, 
romantic subplot. Mm-hmm. This movie, you know, to try to draw in female viewers and stuff, this movie has that, but it's not really forced, I don't think. No, and I think I think part of the reason the TV show became such a big phenomenon was that show even more played into that romantic side of immortality. And I remember the show having a big female fan base. Right. Who, I mean, you know, and like obviously Adrian Paul was kind of a sex symbol too, but it definitely did buy to that idea of this this hunky immortal through the ages and the different loves he's lost and things like that. Now here we have the silver cup sign start to get chopped apart. And if you look closely, you can kind of tell now they're on a sound stage, like with all oh, this yeah. water coming down and stuff. It's kind of like a slightly smaller in scale version. But the dummy of the girl up top is like awesome. I was like hanging there while this shit is blowing up. And some of the faraway shots, the Kurgan like head gets really big, like brainy looking. But this is great looking. I mean, to me, you know, kind of this a sign falling apart and the water they're fighting in and the sparks flying everywhere. To me, this is actually more grand than kind of what you have in modern movies where a whole oh, city yeah. gets destroyed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, like, I love these parts, like, where they start hiding in the water. Like, here, uh, McLeod dives into the water here and he's hiding underwater. I, I, I love this turn that Kurgan does to go down into the water. It's true. Like, watching it again recently, um, I was thinking that the sword fighting in these films is nothing special. Really. They're not right. amazingly choreographed fight scenes. But I think Mulcahy's very aware of that, and he does kind of distract you from that by just shooting it so amazingly, putting them in kind of really interesting visual locations. There's a lot going on that makes the fights seem more grand than they are in terms of the choreography of them. Yeah, I, I, you know, that, that approach, I mean, who knows what we'll get with these Star Wars films. Because they all have different directors, so we have different. We could have different philosophies, but I feel like we've seen enough laser sword fights in Star Wars movies. Like you're not going to make anyone more grand or more whatever. Like mm-hmm. I think they should take that approach with really trying to put them into certain locales and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, and there is a little bit of that in the Force Awakens with the uh, Kylo Ren. Well, I guess spoilers, but oh, I, I won't. I won't spoil it. Wait, wait, don't don't turn off. I won't spoil it. But Kylo Ren fights a character, has a sword fight with a hero character, and it was almost more of a chase than it was a sword fight. You know. Like the like they, the Kylo Ren was chasing this character like around and you know until the very end and they lock swords a little bit more but kind of like what they're doing here like falling through here and stuff like I would I would love to see something like this in a Star Wars film where they're just like really just bashing through a locale and you mm-hmm. know shit going on and th- and this is very this gets very you know music video looking here with them the yeah. fighting a silhouette but I I think it works you know like it's really cool looking. I mean, even, and I will say one thing, like, I've I've read mixed reviews about the DVDs and Blu-ray versions of this film, just because this film was shot very grainy, and for some Mm -hmm. reason, modern reviewers, they don't, like, whatever, but, like, I think, you know, just the color palette of this movie, I mean, it's like, you know, we're sitting here, obviously, we're doing commentary, we're doing a show, we're talking about, you know, everything associated with this film, this franchise, but... You know, just watching with the sound off, like, it's it's such eye candy, like, in, you know, it almost is, like, a movie, I'm sure this movie probably did well all over in foreign territories, because, like, it just probably plays around the world, because, like, 
there's eye candy and even the emotion of the story is played out on screen with very few words, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a film I'm having no problem. I mean, granted, I've seen it dozens of times, but I'm having no problem following it without having subtitles or any audio on. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you really... I would say even... I mean, I, I mean the, the acting is good. I don't mean to be, like, shitting on it like the acting's bad, but I, I would say you lo- with turning the sound off, you lose more from losing the Queen soundtrack and yeah. the score than, than you do, you know? I mean, I even feel like this kind of... This silhouette sword fighting thing was ripped off a lot after this. Not that this is the first film that did this, but right. I'm sure a lot of films that came later were referencing this. Right. This is where I think, like, Lambert... Like, like I said, there's something about whenever Lambert, like, his hair gets wet and he kind of slicks it back like that, he really does start to look pretty badass. Yeah, he almost goes into, like, Seagal mood. <laughs> <laughs> and I like, I like too, because, like, he's just had enough shit with the Kurgan and... You know, he's so fed up with them and stuff. Like, he's, like, for the first time in the entire movie, he starts getting, like, really showy and emotional with his sword fighting here. Now, I never understood this, like, why Kurgan's eyes suddenly, like, his pupils completely dilate. I mean, the only thing, I'm sure they kind of just did it to do something cool or whatever, but the only thing I can think of was just that pretty much in terms of the mortals, whatever, balance... Like, he was the embodiment, you know, because there are only two left. He's pretty much the embodiment of good, and McCloud's yeah. the... I mean, he's the embodiment of, of evil, and McCloud's the embodiment of good. This is a really cool effect. Yeah, where his head peels up, peels back. I love, too, that he's still, like, swinging the sword after his head's gone. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, the prize is not aware of here that Mario and Peebles is stuck in a cave somewhere. Yeah, that, that's the real flawed logic of whatever. I mean, we'll I guess we'll get to that when we finally do Highlander three. But I mean, the 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 you know as we talk about the prize always changes or the prize is vague. But it seems like here, like from absorbing all the mortals, he um, he kind of <coughs> he like he even like says some shit and he'll get swept up here in a kind of weak moan of animated whatever. But he he like yells out like. You know, I know everything, I see everything, I am everywhere, and like that. So, it's pretty much like he, I would say the prize was just ultimate knowledge, wouldn't you say? It's kind of, the way I always took it is that, first of all, it's mortality. So, he will right. age and have a normal lifespan now, which I guess, you know, I don't. I feel like Kurgan would be kind of disappointed to find that out if he got the prize. Right. Whereas someone like Connor can can, can respect that. But I also feel like I always took it more like from the dialogue he has at the end. It seems like he has kind of a psychic bond with everybody on Earth to where right. if he wants to, he can kind of get inside anyone's heads. And then you can see like why that would have been a danger for that power to end up with Kurgan, but why it's a good thing for Connor to have it. Now, I was going to ask you this because obviously Highlander 2 came later and he's aged as an old man and shit. Now, do you think, is it really actually stated in this first movie, though, that he's mortal now? No, I, I don't think it is, actually. I, I don't know. Because I was like, because I know that's what the sequel kind of turns it into, but I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I was watching this carefully the other night, and I was like, I don't think they really specifically state that he's mortal. No, and not only that, but not, come to think of it, I'm not sure the second one even gets back to the idea of him having, like, that psychic bond with everyone. No, because so he... So it's almost like they just changed it to mortality. Right, because he's very content from, in part two, just to be an old, kind of like old man kind of putzing around you know what mm-hmm. i 
I mean, he's invented like that shield that goes right. around the earth. But... And here we get the fact that. Um... Well, I don't, I don't know. Where do you think he's supposed to be here? Yeah, like he's back in Scotland, right? Yeah, I think they've gone back. Yeah, that's what I thought. But that one shot of the car going down this road didn't really look like Scotland, but who can tell? But yeah, it seems like, you know, kind of the lesson or whatever here, theme here is that that wound of, you know, his first life, so to speak, you know, the pain of that, you know, is gone now and he's able Mm -hmm. to, you know, go home. This is definitely a case where, like I said, I mean, they made this film and they clearly were not thinking about sequels. No, just by the way it ends. And then this was turned out to be a huge hit and suddenly... Can you just imagine that first meeting where they just sit down and be like, uh, uh-oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what do we do? Like, I, like I, you know, if they would have made the sequel even later, you think they just would have kind of wisened up and just went back and did a prequel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, was just, I, would, I mean, you also just could have made a sequel about a further adventure of this character where you don't really have to get back to the Battle of the Immortals, but maybe more... Right different enemies that somehow find out about his past and come after him for a different reason or something. So, I mean, that's it. Credits. You know, as we're transitioning here on the credits, um, a big... Let's talk about some of the controversy with Highlander, too. Some of the biggest controversy is that it basically made them more aliens, I guess. Yeah, so I don't know why they even... I I wonder at the... Because clearly I was too young at the time to be a part of the fan base when this was first out. Yeah. But I wonder if there really was any kind of movement where fans were saying, well, we want to know where they came from. Because I just can't imagine people cared that much. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's great is that even though we have all these flashbacks to McCloud's backstory in this film, they never overly explain the whole Immortals thing. No, and I mean, I just always took it like, well, that's just, they're like another race that has always existed, you know. But for whatever reason, when they made the sequel, they decided they had to, had to give an origin, and they revealed that they were they were aliens from a planet called Zeist, right? That were um, all criminals essentially and ex- exiled to Earth, and they were basically all sent to Earth at different time periods with their memories erased. And the first time you die as a human, you then enter into this this game, and actually the prize right. is revealed to be you get to go back to Zeist when you win it, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it was horrible. <laughs> and, and then they re when we talk about the director's cut part two, then they re-edited to kind of change that too, right? Yeah. So in the Renegade version, where they re-edited it, they remove all references to Planet Zeist. And what's cha- what they change it to is that anytime that you see the scenes where they're on Zeist, it's actually revealed that they were just like the original humans who right. were on Earth, you know, eons before you know the rest of humanity, and they were sent forward in time. Which is even more, It's I guess it's better than them being aliens, but in a way it's almost more confusing. Yeah, because they're like in the future instead of being on an alien planet in the mm-hmm. re- revised version of part two. And so in that, like, you know, the, the Michael Ironside character, whether it's an alien or whether he's coming from the past, him and a couple other uh, members of his crew or whatever come into the time period now in the future, I guess it's the future, where Christopher Lambert is now aged, and once they arrive there, because there are now more immortals around, the prize is taken away from Lambert, and the game kind of starts anew. 
Right. And there's a really strange moment in that where when he first gets like the quickening again, he calls out Ramirez's name and it actually brings Ramirez back to life. Right. And I, it just makes no sense. But Well, the, the funny thing, too, is like that movie spends like half its running time explaining how Ramirez came back to life. Mm-hmm. And then, like, as soon as he's finally back and reunited with McCloud, they have, like, one scene where, like, they high-five and hug. And then, like, almost the, literally the next scene where they start the adventure, instead of it being him and Ramirez finally together on a venture, Ramirez pretty much just jumps into a giant industrial fan <laughs> <laughs> to kill himself. It's it's so fucked up. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun movie, either version you watch, just because yeah. it is so batshit insane, but... But it really does crumble under the weight of them trying so hard to, to come up with a story that can justify how this adventure even continues after what you did in the last film. Exactly. So, I mean, definitely, I mean, you know, we probably spent half this this show talking about Highlander and probably half the other time talking about the sequels. So we're definitely going to have to delve into the sequels. And I would love to do this for the sequels as well. So we'll mm-hmm. be... I guess we'll do that over on Hillbilly DVD Reviews so people can check that out. So, I mean, any any closing thoughts about the movie that started it all here, Trev? You know, it's a, it's a film that I still revisit every couple of years, and it does totally hold yeah. up. And like you said, sometimes I feel like the, the length of it a little bit, but it really does pull you through just with the visual style, the music, uh, everything. And it, I, it's a film that... I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's as big of a deal as it was when I was a kid. Right. And I, and I, I'm, I wish it would kind of have a get some of that back yeah i really and whether i mean even if that takes a remake that might even end up sucking but if it got people yeah. to pay attention again and just get the franchise back i'd be all for it well as you know there's been a really recently uh re there's been a in the last couple of weeks there's been a new home video format come out of 4k blu-ray and then probably if we ever want to see this film on a 4k blu-ray we probably need that remake to happen i would say yeah. <laughs> But uh, I wonder if this film would really hold up to the 4K remastering, though. You know, I wonder, because even the Blu-ray version, like, it really switches. It looks like they use different film stocks or different types of cameras while they're filming. So probably the 4K, like, as they're seeing with some of the releases, like, it really can reveal, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the differences in filming and shit. But, I mean, this movie has such beautiful cinematography. I'd be willing to, I would fucking buy it again. I own it on DVD. I don't own Blu-ray. I would buy it a third time. But yeah, but I, I know what you mean, and when you kind of suggested doing this, I was like, fuck yeah, man, Highlander. I mean, you, you know, this show's not about nothing but nostalgia. I was more than happy to go down the Highlander Oh yeah, road. This, is, this really is one of those like quintessential 80s cult films. Yeah. And even though the sequels are so batshit and really don't follow up in the way that they should or whatever, like we've been talking about, like when, when I was done watching Highlander the other night, like I, I, I really wanted to like throw in one of the sequels and get started on that franchise yeah, train. I think, I guess that would be my final word is the reason we put up with, you know, increasingly crazy and stupid sequels and a TV show that started off strong, but then went off the rails and everything is that just the central concept is actually really strong. I mean, like you said, it is high concept, and you could say, yeah, it's style over substance or whatever, but the overall idea of this movie is awesome. It and is. It, it just totally works. I mean, who's not... Sure, it's like you can say like it's, it speaks more to like a 14-year-old boy or whatever, but who's not going to say, like, oh, these immortal racers to cut each other's heads off until only one remains? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, especially for some... You know, and, and I would go as far as to say, like, I mean, it's great high-concept popcorn cinema, but with the way the movie really does, 
you know, dole out its story and is strong and with his convictions and staying, you know, trying to explain this McLeod character. Like, I would go as far to say that it's like thinking man's popcorn cinema, you know? Mm-hmm. And, th- and, and obviously everything... McCall Hay, put in together. McCall Hay Culkin. Yeah, McCall Hay Culkin. It has a real artistic, you know, bent to it, too. It's not just, you know, this wasn't a movie made by a committee or whatever, you know. So, yeah, so I guess pretty much that's it for Highlander. Trev, obviously, I want to thank you for coming and doing this. I'm sure we'll be doing something else pretty soon. Um, For all the. The the Corey G fans out there, I I apologize, you know, and you know, you know things change in the spring, um, but you know all I can say to leave you, you know, in your puddle of Corey G tears there, is happy April first, happy April Fool's Day, and we will catch you next time in the 1980s movie graveyard. <laughs>